When Josh Yole and I started this podcast, we weren't entirely sure what we were doing or what we sought to achieve beyond entertaining an audience that didn't yet exist. But as time went on and we found ourselves engaging in serious conversations along with humorous self-reflections, a friend suggested that I use the platform to explore historical topics in the Jewish community, a serious interest of mine. Thus began the idea behind this episode, and hopefully more episodes to come, the examination of a significant historical figure or event in our past that might be well-known by some, but should be appreciated by all. Rabbi Mayer Ugent. I'm certainly not the right person to teach the public about Rabbi Ugent. I was never a student of his, and to the best of my knowledge, I never met or saw him before his passing in 2001, and was not even aware of his existence until a few years ago. One can only discern a fragment of a broader picture from archival research and reading a subject's written works. So we will instead present to you, the audience, interviews with former students from different eras who had deep relationships with Rabbi Yushin and lasting memories of him. Rabbi Yushin's close relatives were all murdered in the Holocaust. He never married and left no descendants. But as Rabbi Shlomo Rappaport, the longtime principal of the academy, described after his passing, his students were his children. A bit of background. Mayor Yushin was born on June 15, 1924, in Shaduva, Lithuania, to Moshe and Golda Yushin. He had a brother, Ephraim, and two sisters, Miriam and Shana. A child prodigy, he was said to have memorized Mesechus Ksubis for his bar mitzvah. In 1941, when the German army invaded Lithuania, Mayer was a student at Slobodka Yeshiva in Kovno. Surviving an initial pogrom in the city, Mayer was taken with others to the infamous 7th Fort on the outskirts of Kovno, where he witnessed unspeakable horrors before escaping back into what had become the ghetto of Kovno, where he was forced into slave labor. Of the time, Yuzhin writes, No matter how ready we were to die, we nevertheless did not lose hope. The Jewish spark of hope, alive throughout the ages, had not, even at that tragic moment, been entirely extinguished. We were prepared for the worst, but hoped for the best. We waited for death, but yearned to live. End quote. From Kovno, Yuzhin was deported to the Riga ghetto, where he withstood torture, beatings, and grueling labor, but was spared the fate of death because of his ability to work and continued his encounters with the divine providence that he vividly describes in his diary. With the Russian army advancing in the Baltics, Yuzhin was then transferred to work in Hamburg and ultimately into the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where he remained until the end of the war. Of that experience, he wrote, quote, To describe all of what I experienced and saw there is simply impossible. It is more than human understanding can comprehend. Even a pen made of steel would break as it wrote. Perhaps in another camp there still burned a spark of hope that would one would live to experience freedom. But in Bergen-Belsen, even that spark had been extinguished. End quote. On the brink of death from starvation at the end of the war, Eugene relates that, quote, During those last days, the camp did not dole out any water at all. People drank their own urine, ate the flesh of the corpses, and later died of the typhus epidemic that soon ran rampant over the camp. End quote. On April 15, 1945, however, the British arrived and liberated the camp. After the war, Eugen rehabilitated in Sweden, where he helped found a yeshiva in Stockholm and worked with luminaries such as Rib Shlomo Wolby in teaching young female survivors. After an abortive attempt to enter then-Palestine illegally, he settled in Chicago in 1946, where he became the principal of the Rogers Park branch of the Hebrew Theological College and a teacher and spiritual advisor in the Chicago Jewish Academy, where he would nurture generations of students until 1999. The Sentinel reported on his arrival in September of 1946, calling him the son of the Shadu Varov and the sole survivor of 30 people. 
Mayor Yush in the article notes, quote, comes to the Hebrew Theological College with the highest praise from the surviving rabbis in Europe for his personal devotion to the study of the Torah and for his help in teaching refugee children at the Stockholm Yeshiva. Less than six months later, at a time when people did not speak about the Holocaust and fewer were listening, Yushin published an anthology of poems in Yiddish about the war. A review of the time noted his interpretation of, quote, many complex passages from the Talmud. At the same time, he struggles to express anguish and hope. The unmistakable stamp of living nightmares is noticeable in every phrase of his lines, end quote. Later, he would publish another book of poetry titled Shire Mitzar Vatikva, a Musar commentary on Chumash titled Nechamas Meir, and The Chain of Miracles, his Holocaust diary. A 1956 newspaper article noted that Rabbi Yushin had written a Sefer of Chidushim on the Talmud and a history of pre-war Lithuania that were nearing completion, but neither were ever published. Despite his decades-long teaching career at the Academy, students and colleagues have recalled that much of his life remained hidden from the public. Some debated whether he was a Lamed Vavnik with the ability to perform miracles. One individual recalled his assurance to a worried father whose daughter could not get pregnant that she would indeed have a baby, which ultimately happened almost exactly nine months later. While living alone in an apartment on Gallet Street behind the Skokie Public Library, he was said to have been through the Zohar dozens of times. And to a student we will soon hear from, he related that upon his completion of Shas for the 17th time, a charge he understood from his father, he knew that his days in this world were numbered. I would humbly suggest that just as Rabbi Yushin was a hidden figure in life, he has also been one in death. His passing on October 3, 2001 was in some ways overshadowed by the passing only two days later of another tremendous rabbinical scholar, Ravaran Soloveitchik, who was much more widely known both in Chicago and throughout the world. And despite being a beloved figure in the academy for half a century, our city has grown and our population has become younger. Many, if not most among us, have never heard of him. To explore this legendary and complex figure, we sat down with students and colleagues throughout his illustrious career, ranging from Stephen Landis, who first entered his class in 1959, to Rabbi Aaron Lieb, who was his final gabai and was present when he passed. In between, you'll hear from Rabbi Alicia Pirro, who encountered Rabbi Yushin as a dormer at the yeshiva in the late 1960s, and Rabbi Louis Lazovsky, a student in Ida Crown in the 1970s. Then we will hear from Dr. Jonathan Rich and Rabbi Ari Shoshan, students of his in the 1990s. It is our hope that this episode will bring greater attention and appreciation to the memory and legacy of Rabbi Yushin. Okay, we have the pleasure of welcoming on Stephen Landis, prominent attorney that lives between Skokie and Israel these days. And Stephen, you were one of the early students of Rabbi Yushin. Do you want to just give a little bit of background about yourself and where you came from before you first encountered Rabbi Yushin? Well, I can say thank you for having me. This has brought back a lot of memories just getting prepared for this for this podcast. My memories of Rabbi Yushin actually predate meeting Rabbi Yujin. My grandparents, Rabbi Benachem B. and Rabbi Sanchana Sachs, I remember going to their house uh, one day on, on Mother's Day. And we walked in the house, and in the house was this great big floral candy arrangement. Happy Mother's Day. And I said, who sent this? It was a lot bigger than the present we brought. She said, well, there's a young man, a young rabbi, who comes to our house every Friday night for dinner. His name is Mayor Yujin, and he's all alone in the world. And he was really a Ben Byatt at my grandparents' house. 
and used to come every Friday night, which which was, you know, for my grandfather, Rabbi Sachs, nice to have another rabbi in the house Friday night if they didn't have other company. And my Bobby, Robinson Sachs, really, was, as a Mother's Day gift suggested, really helped take care of him because he said he was alone in the world, came to Chicago. As we said in those days, you know, his entire family was killed by the Nazis and that he had suffered a great deal during the war. And so I'd heard about him and his righteousness even before I got to the academy. And one thing that stuck with me, and I sort of overheard my Bubby tell my mother, you know, he comes, but he never eats the salad. I said, why? Because it reminds him when he had to hide in the barn and ate the fodder of the cows. And it struck me as a, probably a 10-year-old, something I could barely comprehend. But I understood that this was a different person, someone who was very much a family friend and somebody who had really gone through experiences that, that we couldn't comprehend. I got to the academy. It was kind of strange in those days. You know, we're used to everybody graduating in June. In those days, you could go through school. They had 9A, 9B, that even you could leave in January and start in February. And so I grew up on the south side in South Shore. I went to, which was a very fine school, like uh, Kiva Southside Jewish Day School which was a pioneering day school in Chicago. And I think we had very good rebellion and we were learning a lot of Gomorrah. And when I came to the academy, I placed into Rabbi Eugen Shear, and I think probably remarkably for this podcast, Rabbi Eugen taught freshmen. People said, well, it's going to be a lot different than what you had in grammar school. And so we show up and, you know, he came in, sort of parachuted in from the south side in January of 1959, where Rabbi Eugen was in his late 30s. And I was, had just been bar mitzvah. So, you know, there's this 13, 14-year-old. This is, as you're seeing this through the eyes of a 13 and 14-year-old, but something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. Uh, we come into class, and, uh, you know, you're used to going to class. And, and the, the Rebbe says, okay, let's everybody get, you know, get in order. We're going to get started. No. The Rebbe Eugen, there was a tefillah. Started the day. Nidvos pi ritzena Hashem amdeni. Which basically is, uh, may Hashem uh, desire the offerings of my mouth and teach me your laws. Really a Pasuk, Nidvos P, we say, it's one of the Pasukim we say before Tzikiah Shofar in Rosh Hashanah. And the idea then, and surely became more advanced as I grew older, that learning is an avoda, learning is part, there's, there's no separation between worshiping Hashem in davening and worshiping Hashem through learning. And it immediately set a tone for what this year was going to be like, that this was surely different than anything I had experienced. And then, you know, we launched into learning the Gomorrah. I showed up the middle, and I remember mm-hmm. even what we learned. It was the second parak, and parak called Shah, which meant that the guys who'd been there from the beginning were already covered 20 block Gomorrah, freshmen. It came clear to me at listening to what was going on that the guys in the class, the, the students, they knew the Gomorrah, that this was serious, that they were into it. And the shear was conducted in a very serious way. So serious, in fact, that one of the other great recollections I have was all of a sudden I heard a slight noise from the back of the room, and Rabbi Eugen said, I won't mention the name of the student because he went on to become a prominent educator on the East Coast. Say was it, you just wasted two seconds. 
which means we've wasted a minute and 13 seconds since the beginning of the year. I said to myself, two seconds? We used to waste hours, weeks. And he's coming after a guy because he wasted two seconds. As I got older, I thought about it and said, why, why this really? And he was fixated on it. It happened during the year. Somebody made a noise or something. It went on that tally sheet of how many seconds we wasted. And why? Because he understood what happens when time is taken from you. That years were taken from him. He was a bacher in the Sparky Yeshiva, 18 years old, when he went off to the camps. And he understood time taken is time that can never be retrieved. And that, I think, is a lesson that then, then he went on always talking about Bitzel Torah and why it's unacceptable. Never really explaining to us why it meant so much to him because he understood what it meant to have time irretrievably taken away, never to come back. Was he a strict teacher back then? I wouldn't say strict. I think he just demanded attention. I think that set a tone. I think, you know, he was strict in the sense that we were here to accomplish something. We covered, I remember, we're, we're, we're 13, 14 years old. We did a, a blot, every, pretty much a blot every week with all the Rashis and some Tosfos. And you were on account to be able to be called on, you know, but then I'd say in those days, the thing you always didn't want to hear, Landis. Remember, we all referred to by our last names in those days. Oh, you read the Gomorrah, you know, like, all right, you're called on to read the Gomorrah. You better know the Gomorrah. So I wouldn't say strict. I think he was demanding in that sense, and I think he had everybody's attention. But Stephen, one of the um, one of the unique things that I find about those times, and maybe you could expound on this a little bit, is that, is that Rabbi Yushin, after coming to America, Within the first couple of years, he, he published a book of poetry that was kind of steeped with the pain of uh, the memory of the war. Mm -hmm. 1959, you come into his class. Was that a typical thing? You had known from your grandparents that he was a survivor. Did other students, and was it something that was spoken about at the time? There's a tremendous contrast between then and now. Nobody really talked about the Holocaust. There was no Yom HaShoah. There was no March of the Living. People knew, right? I mean, we're talking 14 years after the end of the war. And there were some people that we kind of knew and saw in the neighborhood that were sort of referred to as refugees. But it was really unspoken. But then one of the other vivid memories with Rabbi Eugen, as we're sitting there one day, and I think uh, in April, and he said, I just want to say that uh, 14 years ago, at this very moment, we were liberated from Bergen Bells. And I tell you, the air just went out of the room. It was something that, that we, he mentioned to us. I don't think we fully understood it, but we understood it was very important to him. And you want to talk about quiet? That, that room was quiet for a very long time. And so, no, I think the Holocaust, by the time I was, the four years I spent at the academy, was really not on the radar. I think Israel was, but the Holocaust surely wasn't. You mentioned your grandparents, Rabbi Menachem B. Sachs and Rabbi Tzinchana Sachs, or known as Hannah Sachs these days, Josh is uh, a parent of the school. Rabbi Sachs's father, your great-grandfather, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, he, he originally came from, from the same area as Rabbi Yuzhin. Probably 
he had left before the time the Rebbe Yushin grew up. But of course, the, the cousins were some of the leaders of the Slobodka yeshiva and other yeshivas in Europe. Did that relationship inform your relationship with the Rebbe Yushint? Was he aware of that? Oh, he was very much aware of it, of course. If he, if he knew it, Bobby, then he, he surely understood uh, that. It informed me. I, I had the great schut when I was almost 12 years old to spend the summer in Rav Frank's house, actually sleeping in the next room. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I talk about coming from the south side of Chicago into Gaula, living in a house like that and meeting the cousins, for whom I've had relation, you know, since then. Sure, he was very much aware of that. It meant a great deal to him. Uh, Ralph Frank's family came from Kovna and left uh, before the turn of the century, and uh, his parents were the founders of Chadera, but the, he was not going to be a Chalutz in Chadera and went right to the yeshivas. But yes, it did have that, that, uh, that tie, that connection of our family being Litvish Jews very much involved in, in the background of yeshivot and, and, and what was going on in Israel. Just a quick question for you, Stephen. I know when I had Revolution as a student in the 90s, uh, one of the things that set him apart was he often tried to formulate relationships with students outside of the school, like Sunday morning, she at his house, and after school. Was that type of thing that go on then? No, we didn't We didn't, you know, We didn't. didn't have the mobility in those days. I mean, he lived out in West Garfield Park, and the school was still on Wilcox. It's really long gone, you know, and, and uh, in fact, that's one reason he was, came to my grandparents, so they lived there too. He was very much in touch with us. You know, he had an office, and you know, he was a student advisor, and you know, he went for an interview, and he tried to find out what was going on. As far as I recall, no. And basically because, you know, we went off to the south side. I think that at a certain point later on, they would arrange for, for the, the, the students who lived north to go to the Shiva and Skokie on Sunday mornings, and he would be there for that. But no, we didn't, we didn't have those kinds of activities. Just to try to help understand the timeline a little bit. I, I've got that Rabbi Yushin was the principal of a Rogers Park branch of the yeah. yeshiva in some years, whether it was the late 40s and 50s. Was that still going on before he taught at the academy, or were those two jobs simultaneous? I think they were simultaneous, and, and I, I have some recollection of that. The yeshiva had branches. In fact, they had one in South Shore. It was more designed for students who were, were in think in high school, weren't going to the academy, maybe some of them were starting college. And yes, he was very proud. It was in East Rogers Park. It was uh, right near the lake, and it was in an old shul. And, and that's one of that's sort of his second position, and one that I think started his career at the yeshiva. Okay, do you want to speak a little bit about, you You have him in your ninth grade, but then um, going forward in your high school years and even beyond, how did your relationship develop with Rabbi Yushin over that time? You know, he had his committees. He had his newspaper, the Moraderich and the Benos Torah, which was a religious-oriented publication. And I had the honor of being the editor of the Moraderich, so we were in touch for a couple of years and tried to come up with stories and being in touch with him. He said uh, to us, I'm always available 24 hours a day to answer any personal questions, any shaivas, any questions you have. I mean, I remember... <laughs> He would want to know how we were doing as we as we advanced in our in our classes. You know, I remember one year we were I was already maybe a junior or senior. We were learning we were learning Suvos and and you know that gets to be kind of very graphic and some of the things it describes in terms of you know relations. One of the guys when our was he just had no idea. What, you know they used to sort of do it by pointing the rebbe and trying to get you to understand it. And I said. He said, how's your learning? I said, well, it's going fine, except this one guy who 
only grew up to become an eminent physician, you know. A lot of guys grew up in the academy, become eminent, whatever. I said, you know, we're learning this guy. And he, he just doesn't understand it at all. And which he said, and nous Steve you're such an expert. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. So he had a good sense of humor, you know. So, you know, you just gravitated to him. You gravitated to him because you, you, you felt a sense, an inherent sense of responsibility to that you wanted to be in touch because his life depended upon his Talmud. And, and it was mutually reinforcing because you'd always get encouragement. You, you could get an answer to a question you had, whether it was a halacha question, question in the Gomorrah you were learning. And you felt that, that there was a, you know, a risk-free opportunity to, take, to do this. And I saw it for myself, my two younger brothers who, who were students, and then our three sons, you know, decades later, who, who were with Rabbi Eugene. So it continued, and I would say, you know, it continued. Now, you have to understand also that I remember he also was though very, very withdrawn and shy in many ways. He didn't go to events. In other words, we invited him to our wedding. He said he was coming at the last minute. He didn't come, and that was not unusual. It was very hard for him to do things like that. Speaking along those same lines, that's maybe a reason that he, you know, he never got married. He never moved in the community. He just right. he, 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 he was always sort of alone. He was alone in that way. But he was with us. Right. With us. And what was your relationship with him like as as later on as an adult? I understand that for many years afterwards, you remained a student coming to Sunday morning this year. But what about the in-between, I guess, between the 90s and 1959? Well, well, you know, we tried to help him. I mean, I think he also got help, for example, from his colleagues. We had a very stellar group of rebellion in the academy the days I was there. And Rabbi Pfefferman, Zechron Levracha, helped him a lot in terms of how to organize himself financially. Rabbi Lichshain, also Zechron Levracha, were very close in terms of making sure, you know, that he provided for his old age. I mean, he, he had no background in any of this in coming to America. So he was not just the students. And I stayed in touch with him trying to get him to do certain things. You know, I'm a lawyer to try to help him make sure that he could make it to the end. You know, it was, it was a different different person in that sense. I think that, that he had his own views of, of how to prepare for th- things in a different background that, that made it uh, unusual. But we always stayed in touch. I mean, I think, I remember my boys uh, used to drive him home from the academy. You know, he wound up living, a, you know, his career suddenly ended at the yeshiva quite unceremoniously uh, and unfortunately. And I remember our, our son Ezra and my son Avi would had a Big old Ford, and they would drive him home, and they, you know, he could say left and he always would say with this big old Ford Fairlane, "Is this a Cadillac?" No, Rabbi, it's far from a Cadillac. But he always asked that question. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in the yeshiva there that his, I, his career ended? I, I really don't know much about it, except okay. I know that it happened, and he got caught up in all the turmoil with, with Rabbi Soloveitchik, and and. So he left with Rabbi Soloveitchik. Yeah, he was part of that when they did this exfiltration of the yeshiva. Got it. Did he ever open up to you about his wartime experiences, about his kind of personal life? And no, I, th- I think he was very cryptic, very cryptic about it. Occasionally, maybe he suffered from some illness, he had trouble with certain things, and he would somehow make some reference that he felt it was connected with the suffering that he had. No, I think at least in terms of of the students, and even as we became adults. It was not uh, really, I think, when I read the book, The Chain of Miracles, 
those episodes were really for me the first time I'd, I'd heard about it in any detail. So that really wasn't something that he that he felt comfortable sharing with with me at least or, or my or my contemporaries. There was at a period of time and even later that it was referred to just generally, and we understood it as we learned more about what had happened. That book was to, to me at least a great revelation about events that I heard about, and then then you know it, it did echo some things. I think he may have opened up to my to my grandmother about some of those things because some of that stuff. They heard a little bit about, but not in that detail. Surely nothing he shared with us. I was actually speaking to someone recently whose mother went through the war, and uh, her experience coming to Chicago immediately after the war was that was that no one was listening. No one wanted to know about it, right? There was no audience for those experiences. Do you think that isolated him and his experience? Were there other Rebaim that you encountered in educational positions that also had been survivors at the time? I don't think so. I don't think any, we had, <clears throat> except for Rabbi Pfeffer, mostly European-born and raised educators at the academy. But I think they were all people who came before the war or surely had an experience what he had experienced. So no, so I think you're probably, that, 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 that makes some sense. I didn't think the trauma was such that, that people just didn't even know how to put their arms around it. And, and yeah, I think you always were probably afraid of what to say because you didn't know much and you knew it was terrible, but, but there was no dialogue on that subject. And that started to change uh, probably you know, uh, in the 70s or whenever. The, the We've talked to some other people, as you know, about their experiences with Rabbi Ugent, and uh, you know, some of the things that were spoken about were these sort of tales where you know, people, I'm sure you've heard about people mentioning that you know, he, you know, he turned into a fish during the war and he could close doors, you know, he, he could do sort of miraculous things or miraculous things happen to him. But we've also heard, you know, firsthand experiences of people that, you know, witnessed or at least were told from Rabbi Eugen firsthand about things that were out of the ordinary. Did you ever experience anything like that or did you ever mention anything like that to you? No, as I was saying, I think at least in my time, which was pretty early on, I think back to the days we were in the shear or even talking to him outside. I, th I think you're probably talking, at least in my experience, about something that happened later. I think just to, to respond to your point that it became more acceptable uh, to talk about these experiences. You know, I know there always the notion that, that he had some special power to find lost objects. But I don't recall that too much. I recall with my with my with our boys, they lose something, they go to Rabbi Eugen, and somehow it would miraculously be found. And it worked. And somehow it worked. The point I think of, of my reflection on his life is that it, you know, it it's more he experienced the biggest cruelty, and I think that he came out on the other side with, with really a, a, a determination to be nice. Was the class strict? Was he strict? No, I think, you know, he did another thing that struck me right from the beginning. He'd call on you to read or answer a, a question, and frequently, as you, we've all experienced, you get stuck. And he would say, and maybe in your day too, with your permission— I'll ask somebody else. In other words, I'm not going to, the idea of embarrassing a person was something that he didn't want to do. That he would say, with your permission, which of course was frequently granted, <laughs> but, but it was a sense of consideration. His ability to, to help the students, you know, we were going to school on Wilcox, you know, and, and the school started, the opening door was right at the border of the sidewalk. It was the old Masonic temple. And the back of the school was the alley. There was no, uh, you know, we had nothing. 
we had right down the street at the corner of Pulaski and Wilcox, there was this little sort of store where you could go in by a, you know, we had a, like a break. There were two periods for Gomorrah in the beginning, you know, two long periods. There was like a 10 or 15 minute break between the two and guys would go down to the corner, you know, maybe get a bottle of pop, get a candy bar and such. There was a, there was a, a fellow in, a, in our class who also turned to become a very big <laughs> Russian shiva. <laughs> And he, he came from a family that had very, very poor. I mean, I think it's con- difficult for us to even contemplate. But this, this young fellow had a, had, a, had a great memory. And so Rabbi Eugen decided he would have a contest and that any bacher who could learn a, a daf gomorrah by heart would get a cash reward. And this fellow did that. And so that was a way for Rabbi Eugen to help this fellow. And so he also had some walking around money so he could go with the other guys down the street to buy a bottle of pop during the break. And it just struck me as a sensitivity and understanding. And he could have just said, you know, here, take some money and buy it. But no, to combine the two. And so that this, this, this young man would, would be, so we were all kind of amazed that this you know, 14-year-old guy could get up and recite an entire Ahmed of Gomorrah by heart. Now, we could barely say it inside. He was doing it by heart. But again, this idea of, of his just consideration for the students, for, for, for making sure that, that everybody, that they felt good, because I think he wanted to turn his experience understand how bad you can feel and how we were his students, we were like his children, and he wanted them to be taken care of. And I think that obviously connected all of us. To, we were with somebody who was incredibly unusual. It was something nobody else had experienced. Stephen, you became involved as a younger man when it came to um, alumni organizations with the academy, later on becoming the president of the ATT, you know, following the footsteps of your father, your grandfather. What was your interaction like with Rabbi Yushin in those years before being a parent of a student of his, but much later than being in his class? I think, though, you know, at, at this point already, the ATT was past his time. At the academy, I remember... I was going to a board meeting, and somebody got up and said, you know, this is a school that is integrated. We have the Moody Coach, Moody Hall, and I think that uh, all the Rebbeimans should have college degrees, which I got up and said, then we better get Rabbi Eugene to start studying for the Princeton Review. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it did come up. (laughs) How did your relationship change? I know we we touched on this earlier, but I'm just just trying to get more into the weeds there in terms of, you know, you had him as a student, and then I assume you went away to college, and... You know, it's not the same anymore in terms of your daily interactions with him, but you, you managed to maintain a relationship with him for, you know, for 40 years. I mean, obviously, it was a kind of stuff on your part, but in terms of, like, your dialogue with him, your interactions with him, your ability to see him as someone maybe other than this imposing figure um, as you aged, and I, and I mean that in a respectful way, but in terms of the idea that he was sort of living alone uh, as someone of a recluse, you could probably have a different type of understanding, and uh, I'm just curious about how that, how that worked. Well, you know, of course, we lived in Skokie the whole time we were here. I mean, we were, there was a period of time for nine years <coughs> that we lived in the Washington, D.C. area. So there it was more checking in on the telephone. I would go to his house time to time, I think, just, just to give him, you know, have some company and, and talk to him and, and maybe uh, go over some Gomorrah or, or, or something. But I think part of it was, and I think it's true with many of us, it was just to make sure that he had connections, that he, that he saw people other than the youngsters that he was seeing in school. As he 
became older and he had some, you know, illnesses. You know, we were very careful to go visit him to make sure he had what he needed in the house. But I think for for me it was also when when my my three sons became his students, and then you know we were in position of both being a, an alumnus and a, and a parent at the same time, and and fostering. And I didn't. It wasn't much I had to do, but I think he seemed very pleased. Just for us, for so many of us, of his second generation of of Talmidim, we would go to his house frequently. But I think by that time, in many ways, of course, he became much more self-sufficient than he was. You know, when we started out, and he had a broad circle of friends. And I think that his sort of reputation and status in the school itself lent to, to a, a many more interactions with the students and with the community as a whole. But yes, there was always that distance. There always was a sense of being separate. And, and, and look, he, he decided after he left the yeshiva to live, what, uh, in Gallitz, right behind the, the library, which in and of itself was, was just, how, how, do you, how do you explain that? It, 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 it was being, again, removal. Not, you, have, not, you, have a, you have any inclination as to why he chose to do that? More a force of habit. I think that's how he always felt. I mean, he always felt very shy. And I think maybe he felt bereft in the continuing sense. Maybe he just felt that he it's something that he wasn't prepared to do. How would he integrate himself into the community, someone who'd been on by himself all those years? I can't help but think the time that was taken away from him. You know, he was uh, a student of the Slobodka Yeshiva and uh, a student of Musser his whole life, right? And the Hummus Mayor, the book he right. put out is specifically Musser teachings on the Parsha. And uh, at the end of his life, he left money to Rabbi Lazovsky to build a base on Musser, right? This was such an essential part of his life. Looking back, when you had interactions with your cousins who continued to lead these yeshivas in Israel, the Slobodka Yeshiva, and others, right? The uh, the colors are also a family of yours. Was there ever a regard for him? Was there a memory of him? He he came here, and anyone who had survived the war or knew him from Europe for was for the most part either you know migrated to Israel or had been killed. Um, did you ever interact with other people outside that knew of him? Remember how young he was when he left. You know when it was taken from him. So I don't think at that point he had. Uh, and I think and he describes in his book. I think his his chevra that was there, uh, where they, they they're gone. I think the people you mentioned, a lot of them, you know, that that uh, Zalman Meltzer and uh, they they all came to Israel well before the Shoah. They came in the, I think in the twenties, maybe the thirties. So that there was not really an overlap between him and those people. I think that his followers and people he knew were really the people the the, the relationships he built. In the United States, and I think, but when you when you think about it, to respond to your question, you know, when this all started with him, he was the same age as the the, the guys in the senior class when we came. He was eighteen years old, just beginning his career essentially as as someone who could have you know excelled uh, at that yeshiva. But that yeshiva, and, and you, you, I think when you, I mean, what are the miracles? I think the ongoing series of miracles of the book, if he was had been staying at this one place. But the Slobodka people, uh, thank God he wasn't there that night because they all they were they were all taken away. So no, I think that 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 did not develop in that way. Mm-hmm. What else can you tell us? What else? What else do you think that you know the the audience should should hear or should remember about Rabbi Eugen? He wanted essentially to be the antithesis of what he had seen. 
the students were concerned about him because he was so concerned about them. And he treated us much more like adults than we probably deserved. But he treated us with, uh, with kindness. He, he worried about students that were having problems. I think he took that role as student advisor very seriously. And of course, you, didn't, you, don't, you don't hear about everything he did, but, but that if you heard someone was going through a problem, they had a problem at home, they had a problem with an illness, he was there to provide support. He was providing the support that, that you know, he never had so much in his life. I've thought about this, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a Gomorrah that, that, that talks about right? And, and the Gomorrah says that, that, what does that mean? Hashem is chanun barachum, compassionate and merciful. That was his way of life, that he saw himself as, as that there was a reason for his being able to survive and to land where he landed and to have these students and to provide, you say Musser, yes, we had Musser. He explained to us what Musser was. He talked to us about important values, importance of davening, the importance of of being aware of Hashem, you know, to our 14-year-old ability to comprehend. But I think it was his goal to, to demonstrate that a person could go through what he went through, not be embittered, not be sarcastic or cynical, but to, to go back to basic Jewish teachings to be Chan and Verachum. That's how he served God. And I think that just had an impact on all of us as an example, a unique example, a privilege, really, for us to have this relationship with someone who, as he got older, understood even more what he had been through and, and understood how he was turning that terrible experience into something that positively enriched all of our lives. So I just have one more question. You, you touched on this earlier about the fact that, obviously, you had him as a student and then I think over 30 years later, your children had him as students. Did you notice when they had them, from your perspective, ways they changed, ways he was able to impact their lives, either similarly to you or differently, just any, any context you can give us on that? Well, I think you, know, you asked about going to his house. used to have the boys on Sunday to serve the frozen grapes. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think he became more active in that way. I think that, that he pushed a lot more. Listen, times had changed. You know, I think that, that he understood that Sundays, <laughs> the guys would surely, be, at 1 o'clock, be going home to watch the Bears, you know. And, but, but he, something that I think was well beyond his comprehension in our day, that he wanted to fill their lives. He didn't want them to waste time. He thought that Sunday was very important. And that created an important personal relationship with them. But I continue to, to, to be amazed. Look, I mean, my boys grew up in a much different environment than within I did. I mean, they, they were totally different world. And he was able to adapt to it, which I think is remarkable. I think he understood the students were surely exposed to many more distractions than we were in our day. And he was able to provide an antidote and, and, and opportunities uh, in those days. But I think the devotion to him continued at the academy. I mean, the guys took turns making sure they didn't have to take the bus home at the end of the day and to make sure he got into the apartment okay. That didn't change. And I think as he aged and people were concerned about him, that the people did, did follow up. And, and people, I think, almost saw this as almost some kind of a mystical experience that, you know, you, you, you get done, you say, you know what, this is the real deal. 
this is how we're supposed to be. Putting aside all the peculiarities and differences that he had, there was a sense of being authentic. And I think being authentic reaches everyone. And, and I think that was true in, in our time, and I think surely it was true many years later. It's now 22 years since Rabbi Eugen's passing. For a lot of people, especially people like yourself who are close students, right, his memory lives on. But for those who are listening and who have no recollection or have no relationship, how, you know, how do you feel you would want his memory to be uh, perpetuated? I think they should read the books that have come out. I think you have an insight into what uh, p- people have. I think people, as you say, the community has grown tremendously. And in many ways, this, this community has grown on the shoulders of people like Rabbi Eugen. I think that we cannot take for granted what these pioneers did to build our educational institutions, uh, to prepare the generations that came before. I think that his memory can live on and, and should be sanctified by understanding that we had a person like this living in Chicago and teaching in Chicago and befriending young people in Chicago. So I would commend them to, to call Rabbi Lazowski, get copies of the books, read them, understand this. This is what we had. This is a legacy that we, we all share in some, in some way, if not directly, indirectly. We have marvelous uh, institutions. We have the academy, which is a wonderful school. It's there because of people like him who, who laid a foundation. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. Welcome, Rabbi Louis Lazowski, to the podcast. Thank you. Rabbi, can you describe your first encounter with Rabbi Yushint, which I believe happened during your sophomore year at the Academy around 1970? I actually knew Rabbi Yushint from my brother, who had had him the year before. And then I was in the honors tract at Ida Crown, and, and he was my Rebbe. He was my t- uh, Gomorrah Rebbe, and we learned Gomorrah Beitza together. I had heard of him, that he was a, a Tzaddik and a Makubal. And uh, I don't think at the time I understood what that meant. I, I think a lot of kids didn't understand what that meant. So I knew that he was a wonderful person and kind and soft-spoken. And he had many um, innovations you know, that today people would not look at as normal in the early 70s, especially given the time of the early 70s. You can't take Rabbi Eugent out of uh, what was going on in America at the time where kids were at the time, uh, where institutions were at the time. I'll give one just small example. He used to give the children the grade book. And, like, are you kidding me? Right? And he'd have a kid that wasn't so ay ay ay. You know, he wasn't the sharpest Talmud student, but he had moved up from regulars to honors. And so he sat right next to him, and he gave him the grade book. Talk about building trust and respect uh, for your students and for the Rebbe. You know, that was, that was one unbelievable way to, uh, to show it. And the kids responded to it. He really was unique and an innovator in, in so many different ways. Uh, whether it was grading, 
whether it was seeing who the children that he had under his care were. So some of them, he just wanted them to have a positive feeling about Judaism. So, And, and what, what year was this? The whole early 70s. Early 70s. So at that so, point, so, was, was he more of like an energetic Rebbe? Was he bouncing around? Was he... No, he uh, never... No. He wasn't... A, he didn't bounce around. I mean, he was an innovator by looking backwards. In other words, he looked back 3,300 years and was able to innovate uh, and see the future uh, by looking backwards to the Gomorrah and to other different things. For example, if kids weren't... He didn't think they would, they would come to learn what he was teaching, but he had a tefillin polishing committee where they would, you know... He would go to have a campaign for them. He would take other kids who had writing abilities that were shy, and he'd have newspapers of Moraderech and publish pamphlets and things in an era when no one talked about the Holocaust in any serious way. Um, he did both in the pamphlets when the Academy would have their annual commemoration of Yom HaShoah. He would. He talked about it in general or his experience in it? When the, the school had a commemoration for Yom HaShoah. He was a featured speaker. One of his uniquenesses or his attributes was he decided to dedicate his life uh, to Chinuch. People knew that he was called the Angel of Sweden before he came. He was responsible for saving 5,000 Jews who had survived the Holocaust from intermarrying. They had thought because of the Nazi atrocities that they were worth nothing and they weren't even looked at as human. And when these survivors were in the hospitals in Sweden and these nurses were kind to them, they were, you know, intermarrying. And Rabbi Eugene would go around and say, don't do that. And he was almost dead. I mean, he was just, he weighed what many of the other Holocaust survivors did. And I think at some point he decided that he had to, he had to dedicate his life uh, to go on and to assure Jewish survival. And, and that's what he was uniquely dedicated to. So describe for us, I guess, when you were in his class, how it is that you became close to him. I mean, you have a classroom full of 20 guys. What drew you to him, and how did that relationship develop? His honesty, his decency. He understood power relationships with Balabatim and those types of things, but he wasn't swayed by money. He wasn't swayed by people looking for kavod or, or honor. He was interested in following the Torah. So at that point, were, were people in, in your class and around your age, were, were they, was there an element of awe with him or was it more, that was not like a thought in, at that point in, in time? I don't think kids in, in that age bracket were in awe of, of anything other than rock stars. You should forgive me. And I don't mean to denigrate any of my fellow students, but he certainly had a great following. Uh, he certainly had people going to him on Sundays to learn Medrash Rabba with him, to learn Medrash Tanhoma with him, and, uh, and he couldn't get out. So we'd get there, and he'd have frozen grapes in the freezer. And he'd say, would you like some frozen grapes? And, you know, we thought it was, you know, funny, but a lot of people were very much, and had tremendous reverence for him. Uh, perhaps it's my adult mind that's looking at the word awe uh, differently than, I looked at it back then. Perhaps at that age, they really did have awe of Rabbi Eugent. Outside of the classroom, right? Because at the academy, you you weren't the experience wasn't having him for three hours in the morning, right? You had him for no. a class or yeah. two, and then you would go to him on Sundays, 
And how, how is it that their relationship developed as you became a very close student of his? And if, if I understand correctly, he eventually asked you to be the one to say Kaddish for him. Well, that was many, many years later. Oh, was it? Okay. So. I was not just with him for sheer, but he had many of these projects that he had with kids. He had a religious committee where he had select certain kids to lay in and certain kids to be gabai and certain kids to daven. All of these different special projects that he had, the religious committee, the mashpim committee, the mashpiot committee for girls. He didn't, he didn't exclude uh, young girls the way some of the other rabbeim did. And he had a, a, a keen sense of humor that, uh, that was funny. Uh, but it's just, a, I just, I spent more and more time with him. His, his title at Ida Crown was student advisor. So he was a Rebbe and a student advisor. So people who didn't want to go to the guidance counselors uh, would go to him because he had trust in him that he wouldn't violate their trust and that he would help them and, and provide them with the, the moral guidance that, that they needed. And this was because he was a student of Slobodka and a, and a Musernik. But again, I don't think kids at the academy in those days understood what it meant to be a Musernik. They didn't know the difference between Kalim or Slobodka or... Novartic. Uh, Novartic, uh, you know. So. so after you have him in your sophomore year, so how did you stay connected to him? Did he, you continue to be a participant in the various projects he had around the school? Yes. I mean, uh, certainly uh, the religious committee, the Mashpiam, certainly did that all, all four years at, or three years at the academy. He suggested to me that I spend a Shabbos at HTC. I think it was in my junior year. I guess he had plans for me, and uh, he wanted me to experience, you know, more of a yeshiva environment, which I was happy to do. And and then I met Ravarn Soloveitchik at one of the public shirim, and uh, he was also certainly close to Rabbi Eugen. And um, an alignment that Rav Aaron had with Rabbi Eugen was in this public shir that Ravarn was giving, and I. I was at sophomore year or junior in the academy. I was certainly not ready or accomplished or able to understand what Ravarn was saying. But one thing that he said in this year that stood out, and Ravarn said, you know, you all stand up for me. He said, but 200 years, um, I couldn't have been the, you know, the, the shamish in, in, in the shul, much less the Rosh Hashiva. And that honesty and that humbleness that certainly Moshe Rabbeinu uh, was known for, Rabbi Eugen had it, Rev Aaron had it, special people that, that, that had it that really inspired me, really touched something in me and said, this is, this is somebody I want to follow, that he's doing it for Shem Shemayim, uh, not for any other reason. So to clarify, in those years, Rabbi Eugen, when you were a student, Rabbi Eugen was living at the yeshiva. He was. He was also like a student advisor and guidance counselor and um, at the HTC, it was a, a completely different environment than, than at Ida Crown. I think the kids were different kids, not just because they were at the yeshiva, but they were just different kids than the kids at Ida Crown. Can you explain a little bit without, I mean, I, I understand you don't want to get too uh, yeah. verbal, but just in general. Yeah, I, I think that at Ida Crown, Rabbi Yujit was trying to inspire kids to understand the primacy of Torah and Midot. At HTC, it was assumed that these kids understood that and respected that. But I, I, don't, I don't know to the extent that 
that the kids at, at the yeshiva needed it more or less than the kids at the academy. And, and I think that, you know, in the, in the early 70s, the Vietnam War, there were like 400 kids in HTC and older people, married people. And so what was it like after you graduate Ida Crown and you go off and I'm not sure if you could describe for the audience where you went and how you stayed connected to Rabbi Yushant. When I left Ida Crown and, and uh, I actually left in my senior year and went to the HTC full time, uh, but I wanted to graduate with my class at Ida Crown. So I did that, but I was that whole year in the yeshiva. But um, towards March of that year, I became uh, very ill and I had my kidney removed for cancer. And, you know, Rabbi Eugent was there. Uh, he was davening for me. Uh, he had everybody davening at, at Ida Crown, and they changed my, my name. And uh, uh, for what it's, it's worth, looking back as a kid, you know, I believed I would get better because Rabbi Eugent was praying for me. I believed I would get better because the, the Ida Crown student body and, and parents were praying for me. At what point did Rabbi Eugen leave the yeshiva building and move to Skokie? He left Skokie Yeshiva uh, as part of the outsource and the, the, the beginning of Yeshiva's Brisk. I think that he um, sided with Ravarin. And uh, so, with, along with others, you know, he just left uh, HDC and he moved to 5214 Gallitz. Uh, right behind the Skokie Library. Yeah, that's when he left. Right, and obviously that location behind the Skokie Public Library in Gallitz was atypical and wasn't, you know, the heart of an Orthodox Jewish community over there. Did he ever consider leaving there, or what What do you think made him move there, and why was he comfortable, and why did he stay then for a couple decades? Well, he did move out of there, you know, later on, but my sense is he felt that there would be shalom made between what was going on in the HTC and that he was close enough to be able to walk from there down Nile Center to the yeshiva and be able to dive with the yeshiva and, and be back in the yeshiva, at least being around boys and trying to be mashpia, the boys. So that's, that's why he went there, so that he could... I mean, his, his life was the yeshiva uh, before it was destroyed. And so it made sense for him to, to be there. It's not like today we have so many yeshivas uh, in West Rogers Park and Kololim and Skokie and everything. It was a different world back then. And did he return? Did he end up making that walk and davening with the yeshiva? I, I know that he did. I can't speak to for how long he did, but I know that he did. It's well known that Rabbi Yujit never married or had you know, a family of his own after the war. Did he ever discuss that with you? No. What I do know is that many of the Rebbitsons wanted him to get married or they wanted to have him have a shidduch. And he was never interested in that. He was interested in, in promulgating Torah. And he felt that his Talmudim and Talmidos were his children. That he certainly felt. I mean, it wasn't up to me to say, Rebbe, why don't you want to get married? Sure. Uh, it would have been a chutzpah. Yeah, did, did he ever discuss, because uh, you know, there's all sorts of rumors about him in the Holocaust, and 
uh, certain. Yeah, none of those. Are, none of those are true. None of those are true. Okay, so um, he was. So Josh, do you want? He to, was, do you want to explain where you're from? Because Josh was a student at a later time, right? So, and can you explain yeah, during yeah, your so, time what was yeah, talked so, about? Uh, I had him as a rebbe in the '90s, and uh, the most famous story that I'm sure you're aware that was constantly talked about was when he was hiding from the Nazis and jumped to the water and turned to, turned into a fish and was able to survive uh, the Nazis from from hunting him. So I believed that as a student, and it's something that was, was spoken about for years before me, years after me. You know, thank you for clearing that out that that was not true, but I'm just curious if he, if he ever discussed what he went through or some of his struggles during the Holocaust or, or something that has, you know, kind of stayed with him post-war. He certainly discussed the Holocaust. But, but he, I mean, he specifically his involvement. He used to study with uh, one fellow, Chaim Graf uh, Kabbalah, when Yeshiva's Brisk moved to Skokie. He used to go to Brisk, and he would sleep at the yeshiva. There are many midrashim. There's a whole safer of midrash plia, you know, midrash midrashim that don't sound normal or, or right, and and a lot of that, you know, kabbalistic stories. I guess what I'm I'm saying to you about the story about he turned into a fish is I don't think you need to take that literally at all, and I don't think Rabbi Eugent meant to take it literally. So at what point in your life was it that Rabbi Yujin selected you to be the one to say Kaddish after he was gone? First of all, I'm not so certain I'm the only one. I've never asked others. Uh, I don't, some of the, his closer to meet him uh, have not told me that they were asked to say Kaddish. He certainly asked me about it when I was still in the academy. That I know for sure. Why do you think that was? Meaning Rabbi Yushin at that time was in his late 40s, early 50s at most. What do you think would have prompted him to ask a student in high school to take on that responsibility? I think not to say that not the responsibility no, in that I, you have to go to Minion three times a day, <laughs> but more of the the weight of of that. He always would say, "Let's analyze." All right, I think he analyzed in his mind: uh, Is this person going to do it? Would I undertake such a thing? And he understood that I would. Did you feel that I would? be an appropriate person to, to say Kaddish for him. And I think he believed also that I would. What I try to put into practice, uh, those things that he believed in. And uh, I think he believed that as well. Since Rabbi Eugen's passing, you've published some of his works, including his diary, The Chain of Miracles, and a volume of Nechamas Meir on uh, his drushas on Bereshus and Shmos. Do you have any plans to continue that work and continue publishing his works? I'd love to. And what do you, what do you have of his well, in terms of manuscripts? Well, that, that's, that's the problem is that he kept something known as a tugdaf, which was a daily diary and had like 1,000 days of what happened to him during the Holocaust. And that's not around anymore. And we've been trying to get our hands on it and it was taken to Israel and uh, it's not not accessible. In terms of Nechamas Meir, there was in we published Bracious and Shmos. Part of the Nechamas Meir, he also had uh, Gomorrah, Achidushim, and the Gomorrah that we could publish. We haven't yet, but uh, we're trying to to find some of his other works and some of his other sfarim. But again, they were taken to Israel and aren't, aren't so available. I just want to clarify, with the, the diary about the Holocaust, he wrote that when he was in the Holocaust or afterwards? 
Yeah, when he was in the Holocaust. When, during the Holocaust, he was. Yes, writing. sir. Yes, sir. I mean, as is mentioned in the um, in the Hakdama, in the introduction to the Nachamas Mayor, he used to write things on scraps of paper, and he would put them in the corpses. Uh, so the Nazis, when they would inspect them, they wouldn't find them, and uh, and then he would before they would incinerate the bodies, he would pull out these pieces of paper and put them in another body, or he would, you know, that's how he would ha have memorialized these incidents. What would you want the one thing if you could if you had to pick one thing that sort of uh, Rabbi Ujim represented to you and you would want like you know people to remember him, you know, in terms of a characteristic or something he may have said or just you know what 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 kind of sticks out to you as you know this is who he was as a person i know it's probably uh, surprising but i'd say tenacity each of the evos had an, an attribute avram was chesed yitzhak was gevura yaakov was tiferes and gevura people often translate as valor or strength like a gibor shimshon a gibor but it really means tenacity that rabbi Eugen was singularly focused on doing whatever needed to be done to make sure that Torah would survive in America and would thrive and would flourish. To survive the Nazis, it was a keyboard to survive all the things he had to go through to get to America, that he went through in America, that he influenced other people, other Rabbonim, uh, people like Moshe Abrek, Zechir Tzadik, Kosh who worked with Noah Weinberg and was head of uh, Kerov in Canada and all over, you know, so many Talmudim in, in Detroit that are principals of schools. He was successful with enough of his Talmudim so that his mission in life was fulfilled. Okay, we welcome on uh, Rabbi Alicia Prero. We have the great fortune of joining us tonight. Rabbi Prero, in exploring Rabbi Yushin's life and career, a subject that keeps coming up is his time at the yeshiva. Rabbi Yushin was involved with the yeshiva since his arrival on American shores, and it seems that he moved into the yeshiva dormitory upon its relocation from the west side to Skokie in the early 1960s. As a student of the yeshiva later in the decade, and as a dormer from Detroit, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Can you describe your memories of his role in the school and your experiences with him? There's really two categories of people. There were the, the dormers who wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and didn't want anybody to tell them not to do it. And then there were uh, the more yeshivish guys who really appreciated Rabbi Ugent for the persona that he was. It's only in later years, after I, gra I graduated in 72, so you got there in 68? 68, right. Later, I learned the significance of certain details that I knew but didn't appreciate at the time. He, for example, was the Talmud of the Slobodka Yeshiva. He was clean-shaven, wore sports coats, didn't look yeshivish. He was, by reputation, a huge Talmud Chacham. Uh, they even said about him that he could do the pin test, which is you, you stick a pin on a daf on one side and 
the person who is proficient at this can tell you what word it will penetrate on the other side. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, apocryphal or not, but, um, you know, they're not saying that about me. He was a Litvak. He used to say Kiddush on Friday night. You know, the Litvaks typically don't pronounce a shin. They pronounce it as a sin. So he used to say, Yoim Hasisi. And of course, everybody made fun of that because to a bunch of high school kids, that's really funny. He was in charge of the dorm. The dormers uh, were a challenge. They would have been a challenge for anybody. It was a, uh, a very lively, rambunctious uh, group of guys. Dorm was full. This was around the time of the Vietnam War. So the second floor was uh, high school guys, and the third floor was base mentors guys. And the elite base mentors guys were on the first floor. Rabbi Eugen's room was, uh, his apartment was on the first floor, just at the bottom of the stairs that uh, comes behind the kitchen. And he spoke with an accent. So among those who were not particularly close with him, he was the uh, adversary because he was in charge of the dormitory. I had occasion at a wedding a couple of decades after I graduated to see him. There were some people who were more problematic to him uh, than others. I was not among those, not that I didn't enjoy my days at, in the yeshiva, but I wasn't particularly, he was, he was not in my orbit. But there were people who would be oppositional to him. And when I saw him at the wedding, I felt I had to apologize. Not for anything I did, but for my, my chevra, my cohort, who might have harmed him. So I told him, I said, I, I, I said, Rabbi Yishin, I, I don't think everybody treated you the way you, we should have. And I apologized. And he was extremely gracious. And he said, you know, I was a European Malamid. I had no business being the head of a dorm with a bunch of American kids. I didn't understand them. They didn't understand me. It wasn't a good fit. I bear no ill will towards anybody. It just it wasn't the right position. So on the one hand, it was a tough job. I think anybody who has ever held that job would have considered it to be a, t a tough job. On the other hand, we knew that we had Hevra who had him as a teacher at the academy who adored him. It was such a vast difference in attitudes towards him. You had these guys who were normal guys. I mentioned earlier off, off mic uh, about Rabbi Louis Lazowski. We knew that he was very close with our region. My brother-in-law, Eli Dordek, who was a uh, well-regarded mechanic in uh, in Eretz Yisrael, was a, a student at the academy, and he was very close with him. But there were also Bachrim in the yeshiva who were close with their age and who appreciated him, mainly older guys, guys who were already in the base of Medrash, who didn't have a lot of the adolescent rebellion type of thing that was going on. And so they, they, they could either put it aside or just not have that as an issue, and they appreciated him as, uh, as a Tamar Chacham and as a personality. I learned so much about Slobodka afterwards, about the doctrine, uh, the altar of Slobodka aspired and encouraged others 
to fill the role of godless ha'adam, of a person holding himself with a certain, tamir chachamim, yeshiva holding themselves with a certain level of dignity. And when I look back, it's clear that he was, I mean, he was always dressed well. He was always dressed well, not too impressed, just dressed well, put together. Sports coat, contrasting slacks, shined shoes, always had a tie on, colored shirt. I'm sure he did at some point in his life wear black and white, but I don't recall that ever. Rabbi, you mentioned the two different groups in Skokie at that at that time. Uh, one group, like you mentioned, the older Bachram that knew who he was, appreciated who he was, respected who he was, and the high school kids who were being high school kids and, and, and were a bit adversarial. Was there an element that you can recall of the older kids trying to give over to these young kids saying, I don't think you appreciate who this is and say, you better stop acting this way or being adversarial because they, they knew that there was a guttle in, in, in the dorms. And so I know, again, I know it's a long time ago, but do you remember anything like that where you, where you were those kids were ever kind of like being told you better watch it? No, I don't recall that. What I do recall is that at the Purim spiel, the Rebbeim, all the Rebbeim were objects of mimicry, uh, you know, doing impressions of them, etc. And uh, Rabbi Eugen was one of the characters in the spiel. Ravarin Salavechik, Dr. Babad, uh, Rabbi Trachman, Rabbi Herzl Kaplan, a, a bunch of different, and, and they were all, all European, almost all European, Rabbi Trachman I don't think was, but they were all European, so they all spoke with distinct European accents. So it was very easy to kind of, uh, you know, mimic them and to exaggerate their overt character traits. There were people who admired him, but I don't know. My lack of recollection doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that I was a high school kid, and if somebody did tell me, I discounted them and probably didn't listen to them at all. I was not oppositional to Rabbi Ugent. I just lived in the dorm, that's all. And he was a dorm counselor, so he wasn't on my side. Living in the dorm in his age as, you know, a survivor of the war without a family, although he had his students and he had a, he had a chevra that, that was around him, that appreciated him, it must have been a somewhat of a, a lonely experience. Have you ever reflected on that or did people recognize that? And did he have within the yeshiva, I guess, a network of colleagues that he was close to that you remembered? Was he, did he have relationships with other faculty members? So first of all, we were mindful of the fact that he was a Holocaust survivor. That was and, spoken about at the time? Yes. And by reputation, his family was killed in front of him. I don't know if that's true. And there were a number of stories about his survival in the Holocaust. These things loom much larger in terms of uh, empathy for adults than they do for, for kids. For kids, it's a footnote. It's an asterisk. It's something but it really didn't it didn't inform how we related to him. As far as his colleagues go, I can't really tell you that I was aware of it. He may well have. I mean, he was a Tamachacham. I have little doubt, and he used to be in the Beis HaMedrash. So I assume that he had conversations, and I know he had, I know he had relationships with uh, the older Bachamit, mean, even within the yeshiva itself, even within the Beis HaMedrash itself, you had two different camps. It was during the Vietnam War, and there were a number of people who, uh, truth be told, probably would not have been 
as eager to be full-time students in yeshiva had it not been for the fact that they could get a 4D deferment from the draft. It probably increased the population in the yeshiva, the enrollment in the yeshiva. And it also, to a certain extent, there were two camps, maybe not a distinct two camps, but there was a, a broader continuum of commitment to learning than you might have had during non-draft years where people would have felt comfortable leaving the yeshiva and going to a full-time secular college. There was a, a college deferment also available. It was a 2S, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't think it was quite as secure as a 4D. A 4D was a, it was a pretty good deferment from the draft. Reunion's always struck me as a mild-mannered person, right? I mean, I had him, I had him a, a little while after you, but he was, he was never one to raise his voice or to outwardly express anger. When he was younger, uh, when, you know, when you knew him, was there ever a time you can recall him getting visibly upset or frustrated or just had had it with the boys and, and sort of it, that, that type of mindset? Yeah, there were a number of times, and you're right, I don't remember him ever yelling. He did not yell, but he would breathe deeply through his nose and kind of, and he would say somebody's name and and uh, express disapproval and tell them that they had to go back to their dorm room or they were grounded or something like that. Uh, he, I don't recall his ever raising his voice. That just was not in his repertoire to the extent that I knew him. I learned also a little bit about him uh, later when I was uh, Talmud of Revaren uh, Salavechik in, in uh, Brisk of Chicago. There was one fellow in the base medrash who, I think he told me, or somebody else told me, used to go to Rabbi Eugen's house at 2 o'clock in the morning to learn Kabbalah. He was a nister. Rabbi Eugen did not wear his uh, chachma, his tzidkas, his, his familiarity with Kabbalah on his sleeve at all. He was a very quiet person, a private person, but he was a serious person and very substantial this is something I only learned later about him. I don't know if it came out in any of the uh, interviews earlier. Well, in he... Josh's time, Josh, I'm sure you could share, but what we've talked about more of the generation from Josh's era is that there was this mystique that at least stories and legends that were told about him and asked to him, which, if I'm not mistaken, he wouldn't outright deny, but that there was, they're always, whether apocryphal or... That he turned into a fish and yes. swam across the river. Yeah. <laughs> was that, was, was that there in the late 60s also? Did people tell such stories about him? I honestly don't remember that. We've asked the different people that have come on, and, and to a T, everyone has said that that's not what he meant, that's not what happened. And uh, it's been sort of embellished over the years. But like to Jordan's point, you know, we would ask him as high school kids, and we'd heard these, these legendary stories. And to my knowledge, I don't recall him saying didn't happen he but he wouldn't say it did happen it was sort of like he would kind of leave it open to the extent that we understood that uh so that was just interesting right. that it hadn't changed not to digress too much but that's not uncommon in my experience among holocaust survivors that they don't necessarily get into the, the gruesome detail although rabbi Uchin did talk i mean i i only learned i'm conflating what i learned while i was in the yeshiva to what i heard Afterwards, I remember when he passed away, the Hespedim, and they talked about uh, various miracles, and I have a copy of the book that he uh, 
that he wrote about his about the miracles that occurred to him in escaping from the Holocaust. Do you think that, you know, Rabbi Perra, I know your father was American-born. Your mother was as well? Yes. But I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of classmates at the time in the late 60s who whose own parents were survivors. Yes. Is that the case then? Yes. Do you think that maybe some of the less sensitivity to Rabbi Yujint was that, you know, looking back for, for a kid like me, I, it shocks the mind to think how could you, you know, you look at a survivor this way, but to that generation of students, everybody was a, an older person was a survivor. So there's no difference between, you know, your parent or your friend's parent and the guy in the dorm, he was a dorm counselor, period. Well, it's funny you say that. There were people in my class whose parents were Holocaust survivors who I believe had a closer relationship with Rabbi Eugent. Than so it had the opposite effect. The ones whose parents were Holocaust survivors, on some level, I think, related to him better than the Americans did. It's hard to go back and, and imagine the gap that there was between American teenagers born in the USA and the Rabbeim, who were European. Uh, it wasn't always an issue, but there were, there were a number of, uh, I would say, the majority of the Rabbeim on staff at the time, certainly in the Beis HaMedrash, maybe uh, in, in the high school as well, I'm not sure, were European and uh, not in the high school so much. But it, certainly the base medrash, you know, to American kids, they just they spoke funny. They were just different. And Rabbi Landy said a similar. Uh, Miss sorry, Mister Landy said similarly that when he was in school, which is about a decade earlier than you, nobody talked about the Holocaust. There was no Yom HaShoah. There was no mention of it. People just sort of went about their day. And like Jordan said, everybody was a survivor, and it certainly wasn't looked upon as anything to be discussed or uh, or thought about really. Well, I just know that. About Rabbi Eugent specifically, that it was known that his family was murdered. I mean, that everybody knew. It was part of who he was, and it was, uh, you know, for better or worse, uh, obviously for worse, but it was uh, part of the texture of who he was. And, and people who, I believe, people who were close with others who had gone through something similar probably understood him better than the other boys did. Okay, so it's the opposite of my prediction, but <laughs> I'll take it. No, much appreciated. Anything else you have, uh, you know, you can recall or, or you want to share uh, in terms of... Yeah, looking back as a 69-year-old uh, adult here, I think I'm there now, one of my regrets is that I didn't develop more of a relationship with them, especially because there were people who I respected who did especially in the academy, which means that you could be a normal guy and still have a relationship with their agent. There was probably so much there that was potentially enlightening and bond-creating and enriching that was potentially there. I just wish, I, I could say, I wish I had uh, developed a relationship more. That may be completely unrealistic, given that I'm not a kid when I'm saying that. And when you're a kid, you have other interests and other priorities. And I think Rabbi Eugen, when, when I spoke to him later, he nailed it on the head. He said, I was a European Muhammad and these were American kids. There was a vast gulf between us. Rabbi Perro, that was very enlightening to have you on and definitely helped us uh, fill in some of the gaps in terms of 
his role at the yeshiva and what it was like at that time. So very appreciate you coming on. Thank well, you very thanks. much. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome on, Rabbi Ari Shoshan, coming from Scottsdale, Arizona, a longtime old Talmud of Rabbi Yujint. Rabbi Shoshan, do you mind uh, giving us kind of like a brief introduction, telling us, you know, what years it was at the academy that you first became acquainted with Rabbi Yujint? Okay, thank you so much for having me here. It's a big honor, especially to be able to join you to speak about our Rebbe, Zecher Tzadik Levracha. I was in the academy from the fall of 1989 until graduated in 1993, and I was fortunate enough to be in Rabbi Eugen's year for two years, so both my junior and senior year. But I already became connected to him on my first day in high school. And how was that? On my first day of high school, I came with regards from my brother, Yuri, who was in the academy class of 85, and also had Rabbi Eugen for two years. And so I came to, to Rabbi Eugen in the early morning, davening, something like that, and I said... You know, my name is Ari Shoshan. I'm, I'm, I'm Yuri's brother, and Yuri asked me to say, you know, say hello to Rebbe. So he's, I'm sure I didn't speak to him in third person, you know, but I said to him, um, Yuri asked me to send regards, and he said, your brother was chairman of Mashpiim, and you will be chairman of Mashpiim. That's the first thing he said to me. A great committee. Can you explain a little bit what that was? Well, I mean, the academy was a, a, a dynamic environment with a lot going on. And obviously, I think maybe all of us are graduates of the academy. Is that so, Jordan? I'm a graduate of the yeshiva. I got it. Okay. And Josh might not have graduated. <laughs> I did, I did okay. graduate. So the academy was was a dynamic place with religiosity, modernity, different things going on. And there was a religious committee. The religious committee was in charge of Hanukkah banquet and mezuzahs and maybe tzitzis sometimes, I don't even remember, something like that. And Rabbi Eugen was the staff advisor for that. Incidentally, I just have to tell you, we, we had to get, um, for the purpose of National Honor Society, we had to have point. our, our uh, service points signed. And Rabbi Eugen was the advisor for, for Mashpiim, Mezuzah Committee, Hanukkah Banquet, all kinds of things. And he, would, he was very generous with the points, very generous, as he was with grades. Oh. And... He uh, said to me on a few different occasions when he would sign my thing, one of two lines. He would say, save this. It will be worth money someday. About his autograph. Ari would say, I will sign it with my initials, MJ. Michael Jordan made them famous. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but Mashpiyam was this group of guys, Gabayim and so on, that would do the religious things in the school. And so the first day I met him, he sort of connected me to the past, connected me to a mission, and I took it seriously. And indeed, I was Mashbiim head senior year and Mezuzah head for four years. And he just put that on me right away. Okay, and then it's not till it's not till eleventh grade that you enter his class. Correct. Okay, so tell us what that experience was like. Officially, it was second, third, and fourth period. Second and third period were Talmud seven, and fourth period was Chumash. 
And then we went on to Hebrew class. Like I had Mrs. Bass senior year in fifth period. Some had lunch then. But there was no such thing as second, third, and fourth period with Rabbi Eugen. And there was no division of we do this for 40 minutes and then we do that. You were in his world, his sheer, for those whatever the number of minutes it was, you know, something like two hours. You were, you were with him. In fact, we rarely learned Chumash at all, actually. We d- did have Parsha responsibilities or whatever, but it was entering his world. And his world was a world that started for him at like 6 a.m., that he had come to school and written on the board an entirely new day of Chidushe Torah. Actually, my senior year, he asked me, write down all the Chidushe Torah from the board, and you'll receive a, a, an award at graduation, which ended up being a cash award, actually. It was a good situation. But you'll be the one who's writing over the Chidushe Torah, and there's an award for that. But my point is that we were high school students, like students anyplace else, and we were indeed those high school students with sports and TV and everything on our minds. But when you entered his world, it was somehow the world of his father, the world of Rebel Hanan, the world of Slabodka, the world of, you know, your brother was here 10 years ago. He said this, Reb Shlomo Holman and Reb Benji Samuels and Danny Altschul and Abba Kroll and, and reaching back to different, you were just part of an entirely new universe of his Torah and that even engaged us on Sundays. You know, I used to wake up right before the time for class. Even if that meant that I skipped davening, you know, what other high school did you go in America? You met friends from Flatbush or Frisch or Ramaz or Eula or wherever. He was a character unlike any, nobody had been in a world like that where Sundays were a place to go to him until basically from wake up until kickoff. We were with him in the morning and then home to see the games. But it was a different world completely. It's like he almost had his own yeshiva going on within the institution. Yeah, totally. And, and it had its own rules also. I'm talking about hundreds of words per day. Kasha, teretz, achronim, rishonim, things that were way above our head. Way above our head. We didn't even know really what was going on on the board. But he was taking us into that place. And then, as I said, it didn't have schedule. It didn't have grades in a normal way. Frankly, about Rabbi Eugent, you knew you were in a bad place with him if your grade was A-. minus. If you got an A-, minus, you were like, <laughs> like yeah. something's wrong. Like He needs to talk to you about your behavior and your performance because the only grades he generally gave were A plus and A. And I think that the school understood this but knew that he was a different, he was different, he was just a different realm. He had his own office. And, and actually, you might get a kick out of this. I know that, that this is not like a, as much of a fun episode, and I, I love the work that you guys are doing. It is so much fun to listen to you. But he had an office that was right next to the sick room in the hallway where Mr. Merzel's office uh, was. In the corner. In the corner of the of the office. You know, it didn't have a name. It wasn't like the outer office counter. You know, it didn't have a name. But he had his office, and he was there in the afternoon, and you could go talk to him if you wanted to. The school, to their credit, placed him in a different way. He wasn't just a teacher student advisor, whatever the titles were, it, nothing fit. It was like a man from a different time who was there to give you access to that different time. And did you take those opportunities to go and talk to him? How, how did your relationship develop, I would say, outside of the classroom? Obviously, everything came from because of the classroom, but you know, how did that take on a different shape when it came to your relationship? 
So before I answer that question about me, I want to tell you something that happened well before I was in the academy. The principal of the academy in the early 80s was Rabbi Blanchard. That's before my time. And at some point, Rabbi Blanchard realized that Rabbi Eugen was taking a cab to school every day. Part of the mystique of Rabbi Eugen was that he lived in kind of an odd location. He lived near the Skokie Public Library. And when we would drive him home sometimes, he would say, okay, make a turn here. And you see that building there, the fourth floor? That's my pad. <laughs> he had all kinds of cute phrases. He loved the word psychedelic. He, he, <laughs> he, um, my brother was just found, my brother, I know, I have, an, I have an, many people who are listening to this, I'm sure know, but certainly people don't. I have an identical twin brother, Donnie, who's now called Rav Gidon. So Donnie was just looking at, maybe three years ago, he's looking through old papers, tests from Rabbi Eugen's class, and he gives an answer to a Gemara question, you know, what does the Gemara mean here? But, uh, and Rabbi Eugen's comment underneath, underneath the check mark that it was a good answer was, real smooth. <laughs> so so, so he said, that, that's my pad. But going back to Rabbi Blanchard, so Rabbi Blanchard discovered that Rabbi Eugen is taking a cab every day. And he says to him, Rabbi, let the boys drive you to school. If, if you let them drive you to school, they'll, they'll have, it's good for them. It's good for them. Kavarat Torah, access to you. Let them drive you to school. Rabbi Eugen was, you know, not so happy with that. He, he acquiesced. And at some point, people started driving him to school. In my time, I think credit should be given. I think Benji Merzel often picked him up early in the morning. Certainly Rabbi Gutstein was like his right-hand man doing a lot of that driving. And to school and from school. Rabbi Eugent took the money that he had been spending on the cabs. I remember you saying to me something like, the cab costs $8 a day each way. And he took the money beginning something like in 1980 or 81, and he put it aside. And many people know that around 1995, Rabbi Eugent dedicated an ambulance to Magain David Adom. And the Magain David Adom ambulance was the collection of the dollars that were saved on the cabs. He said, okay, I'll let them drive me, but I'll, I'll use the money for something important. And so there he was, a man of, you know, a teacher's salary, but over the years of like 15 or 18 years of collecting money, that's when he dedicated the ambulance to Zecher Nishmas' parents. Different kind of a person, totally different. So back to me, my access point to him was definitely in class, for sure. But he had already created a relationship between us on the very beginning of my first day, freshman year. So that was very informal and somewhat regular. I would say hello to him and so on. And he engaged me in this mezuzah responsibility in school. So I related to him for two years that way. But what was amazing about him, in many ways, I guess this is what the most important thing I would like to share, is that we had classes. We had this uh, topic, you know, this subject and so on, U.S. history and chemistry and physics and chumish and ivrit and so on and so forth. And we had things going on, basketball and intramural softball. That's just to include y'all and Josh, you know, at the same time. You had me at basketball. Exactly. That's why I, I went to intramurals Josh. for Josh. Right. And so we had all kinds of things going on. I remember Rabbi Eugen saying multiple times, quoting the Gemara in Adarim, that the base of Migdash was destroyed, that Yerushalayim was lost because they hadn't blessed regarding Torah. They hadn't said the Birchus Torah before learning. And there's different interpretations of that exact meaning, but the basic interpretation, Rashi there, I think, says 
is that they viewed it as a regular subject. They didn't understand it to be something different. Everything about him was that learning Torah was something different. That we, the test didn't matter the same way as did in other classes. The bell didn't matter the same way as did in other places. You walked into his room, you had classmates, but you were part of something that was guys who had been in this year years earlier, guys who had yet be coming. Like I said before, Rebbe Hanan, his father, the Chafetz Chaim, because the Chafetz Chaim was Rebbe Hanan's Rebbe, and Rebbe Hanan was my Rebbe. Like, you guys are next in line. You're part of something different. And so he brought that in with us all the time. Later on, I did give him some of those rides. Probably every time he started the ride the same way. You get into the car, and he would say, oh, we have an opportunity to be Mekayim that you learn Torah while you're on your way. Now that we're on our way, we'll learn, we'll, we'll, we'll learn something. And he would share something. So it was, it was a totally, totally different place. And we all know people who grew up, let's say modern or in high schools like ours. No one had access to a person like this from that world. No one. No, no one. We, we, we had something that was a gift of growing up in the 80s and 90s, that there was this remnant of a different velt that was that was giving us something. And that's who he was. And 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 I, I remained close to him till, the, till his last days. Now, a, a, a very brief story. I was married and I was with my I was visiting my in-laws who live in Atlanta on Pesach of 2001. This is about six months before he was Nifter. And I decided to go visit him. I spent one day of Cholomoyed, I got up in the morning and I flew from Atlanta to Chicago to see him and then go back to my family. By the way, he was very connected in general to the concept of being Makbil Pnei Rabu Beregel. That's a Gemara in Sukkah that you have an obligation to visit your Rebbe on, on Yontif. And the, interestingly, tangentially, the Ritva says, but it depends on how close you live to your Rebbe. If you live near him, then you have to do it every Shabbos. If, if not a little further away than on Rosh Chodesh. If not, then Yontif. And that's how the, the Ritva explains a complex Pasuk that do, doesn't really make sense in the context of that Gemara. So i just tell you this because Rabbi Eugent says that in 1946, he's arrived in America. He's in what we now call Skokie Yeshiva. It wasn't in Skokie then. And he says over this Ritva, and somebody says to him, the Ritva doesn't say like that. And he said, no, no, the Ritva does say like that. He says, well, if the Ritva says like that, I'll buy you a safer. He says, okay, I'll take other, he takes other Ritva. He shows him, it's exactly as the Ritva says. So the man gave, took out $10 to, to buy him, or $5, buy him a safer. And Rabbi Eugen said, would it be okay with you if I use the money to buy shoes? That's who he was in 46, arriving here, like accidentally, and his entire drive to give us that world that was filled with love and affection and Sundays and after school. I mean, who would come back if, can you imagine any other subject in all of high school? Like you're in Mrs. Litt's U.S. history class and former students are coming to hear U.S. history again. Right. <laughs> it would never happen. He's there and, and the and guys are coming in the summer after they're done with their year. And I was one of those people right. who remained with him all those years. So I was going to ask, you know, one question. In, in my mind, there were sort of two teachers that had, quote-unquote, Hasidim. Now, you, you sort of have to bring your brain back or to your mindset back to 90, you know, 1993. 
and the two teachers I always saw that people used to sort of flock around and give this quote unquote covered because you'll soon see that they're really not on the same level was uh, Rabbi Eugent and Mrs. Rosenwald. You know, she always had these quote unquote Hasidim people following around, talking to her, you know, trying to you know pick her brain. What does she think about this? What does she think about this author? You know, Shakespeare, blah blah blah. So the question is, at that point in '93, did did you look at a Rebbe as different as yes, he was bringing you back to you know, you know to the to the old Velt as you said, but was it something more of a, a religious connection or was it something more of like an academic? Like, okay, this is old Torah, this is, you know, Torah from Europe, and I'm connecting to that, and, you know, I mean, as well, I'm also connecting to my literature teacher. Like, did you look at it as almost like a religious experience? I think it's really important to just, like, create a certain context where today, okay, I'm, I'm a shul rabbi, and, if you will, from the black hat world and whatever it is, sure. I was one of us. Right, yeah. You know what I mean, like, yeah. when I was in high school, there was nothing about me that was, like, okay, you must have thought that way because you were already very religious. Right. right Not so. Right. That's what okay. I'm asking. Right. But I think nevertheless, I did see him in a totally different way. My brother, Yuri, who's class 85, had good feelings about him. In the perm spiel, I remember when Yuri was in high school, Rabbi Eugen's character was constantly creating magic tricks because of this tradition that he was a Makubal. Right. And, and he was a Makubal. I have no doubt that's true. I saw the kitlach hanging in his bedroom that he would say, I'd learn Kabbalah in a kittel, you know, every day. And the Chavrusa, I don't know who the Chavrusa was, came over like at 2 a.m. every day. Like by 6, when he was going to the academy to write on the board, he was already up for a long time. So there was a sense that there was magic around him and that it was more important and of a different kind than anybody else. Okay. You know, I didn't finish the story before I realized... So I went from Atlanta to Chicago to visit him, and he wasn't well. And actually, when I came into his apartment in Park Plaza, he called out from the, from the bedroom that he can't see me. I did not see him that day. I had flown from Atlanta to Chicago. I didn't see him. But what I did see was that my then one-year-old daughter, her picture was in a frame on the wall. Hmm. I had sent him a picture of her, maybe brought it to him, I don't remember, and he had put it into the frame on the wall. <laughs> That's like the connection that we shared, which was really, it's hard to describe because it's so unusual. Right. Extremely unique. The bulk of his life, like your story, right, his, his students were his children and the classroom and the academy, that, that was really the, the, his day and his service to God was, was nurturing uh, his students. But he also, like you mentioned, had this kind of, kind of mystique and this life apart. Off of Oakton, behind the Skokie Public Library, and there was a certain mysteriousness, and there was also his history being a, a survivor of the war. To what extent did he bring you into that world or share with you recollections, whether it was from wartime or things about him that maybe other students weren't uh, exposed to? He did not bring me into it a lot, actually. He spoke about the fact that he had written... Chain of Miracles, which has since been published, but at that time was left secret. I knew that it existed, and I knew that he had stories to tell, but he didn't tell the stories. The things he reflected on in Europe were positive things. This may have been mentioned in a different interview. I don't know. He finished Shah 17 times. Did, did that come up? It did not. Okay, this is a must. 
when he was like six or seven years old, he went to Siamashas in Slabodka with his father. He told his father after experiencing this, I would like to finish Shas too. And his father responded with a single Hebrew word, Tov. And this someday Mekobel understood that if his father said the word Tov, and the gematria of Tov is 17, his father is giving him a bracha that he's going to finish Shas 17 times. And I was with him on the occasion of his finishing the 17th time. And he told me, now for the first time in my life, I'm nervous that my time is coming. And he didn't finish 18th. He finished the 17 times, according to the father's bracha, and he was gone a few years later, maybe a year later, I don't remember. My point is that, A, he, was sh- he shared himself with us, but he shared the good stuff, really. He was definitely pained by the bad stuff. There were times that he even evoked it in ways that we were hurt by, that we were hurting him again like he had been hurt in the war because we're misbehaving or whatever it was. And that was very difficult, very painful. I remember he once called me at home to apologize for how he had spoken in class. And my assumption, he had called others as well. It wasn't like, because it wasn't about me. I think he probably called everybody that night. So he brought us into that world of the good. He exposed us to the world of the pain, for sure. In his home, there was a picture of his family. Underneath the picture of his family, in his own handwriting, you may remember this, it said, what cannot be cured must be endured, was written underneath the picture of his family. So he exposed us to the pain, but he didn't tell us about it. He did have ways of making me personally, and I'm sure others, feel close to him. Particularly, I remember on June 15th, 1994, I was back from Shana Aleph in Hakotel, and I was coming to the academy to be with him and go to his class for an hour or two, whatever it was. And then I drove him home. And on the way out of the school, we walked down the stairs in the front. We're walking towards my car. And he says, I want to tell you something. And don't tell it to anybody except your brother. Today is my 70th birthday. He shared himself with me, made me feel like a million bucks. But it was mysterious. You know, he got Mafter Yona year after year in Skokie Yeshiva on Yom Kippur. That was close to his house. I think he stayed in the Holiday Inn. I don't think he walked the distance. But otherwise, presumably he wasn't having a minyanam on Shabbos at all. What was that? That was a whole, you know, mystique for sure. He was mysterious. But he did let us in in beautiful ways that were a lot about his father and the old days and less about the, the current times. Did he speak about his brother at all? I remember vaguely he used to mention about his brother in terms of learning. Yeah, so he had a little brother, Ephraim. And he was always praised him. Right. And he was he would have been a much bigger Talmud Chacham than I. He was a real Ilui. He knows backwards and or some or I don't remember the yeah. details. Rabbi, you've gone on, you know, after you left the academy, after graduating in ninety three, you go off to Israel, you end up, I believe, in, in Baltimore, becoming, you know, a great Talmud Chacham in your own right and and going on this, you know, great rabbinic career now in Scottsdale. How did your relationship with Rabbi Yushin inform that path? Because he passed away in 2001. So so well into your career in learning, you stayed connected to him. How did he help guide you in that path? It starts with inspiration. There's a detail about me that probably none of you knows, that my father grew up in a, in a Hasidish family, and my grandparents were very old. They lived in B'nai Brak. 
So when I was a little boy, we visited Eretz Yisrael many times. And my grandfather was 82 years older than me. People ask me all the time about myself when they come to the shul in Arizona. They, oh, what's your background? Where are you from? Well, one second, how did you become, how'd you get here? So I always say there are two great inspirations in my life, my Zaidi and my Rebbe. By the time I was 18 years old, I was poised to flip out, if you will. You know, I was poised to, to experience the Israel yeshiva experience in a more meaningful way. And I give a lot of, all the credit really to my Zaidi and my Rebbe. Even the fact that we were the only people we knew who called anybody Zaidi. You know, we were the only Nusach Sfar Daveners growing up because we had this connection. But Rebbe Yujin was so huge, so huge a part of that. I'm Baruch Hashem blessed with a big family. And in different ways, different of your kids, you know, reach you with a certain sparkle in a different way. Nobody has favorite kids, if you will, except that maybe everybody does. <laughs> I cannot describe to you what my son Mayer means to me. You know, I have a son named Rebbe Eugene. My brother has a son named Rebbe Eugene. There are probably about 10, 12 of them out there, I think, that we know about. When people say, you named your son for your Rebbe from high school? I'm like, you don't understand who this man was. It was a totally different thing. So how did he inform? In every way. Everything was about trying to access the Avas Torah and Avas Hashem that he had. How do you endure what he went through? How do you have nothing in your own personal life and you give your whole self to being Marbek Fod Shemayim, to being Marbet's Torah? He didn't even plan to come to Chicago. He says that when he left Sweden, he thought he was going to Baltimore. But he ended up in Chicago and it felt right, so he stayed. When I was trying to decide whether to go to Baltimore or New York for college, before I ended up going to Yeshiva in Baltimore, he said to me, you'll go and you'll see and you'll know. You'll feel it. Like when I came to Chicago, and indeed I did feel that way in Baltimore, which it's complicated my personal story how I ended up there, but that idea that you'll feel it is something that I tell people now. You'll sense that this is your place. And we were all fortunate that he sensed that Chicago was his place because my story is just one story over a period of time from, I think, 1946, 2001, and actively from 46 to like 99 where for 53 years, he's just touching people with this magic. Now, there's no doubt that some people were not touched by the magic. They didn't relate to him. They didn't understand. They found him out of touch. I never found him out of touch. And there were a lot of guys my time who never found him out of touch. He was just something special, something that we could, could touch that was so unusual. Did you know of any connection, you know, teaching at the academy in terms of sort of being, you know, separated from the yeshiva world, separated from, you know, the world of learning? Did you know of any personal connections that he had with other Roshi yeshivas, other, you know, Rabbanim who, who you know, grew up in Europe and, you know, came after the war? Do you know any, you know, connections, I guess, that he had with any other, you know, Roshi yeshivas or fellow Talmudim? It's a great question because it's all, it's all part of that mystique. Right. But I'll tell you something that I don't have any explanation of. So Rabbi Yujit was a bacher. He was never married. He wore a talus. He wasn't yekish. So why did Rabbi Yujit wear a talus? Evidently, he didn't wear a talus in the early years, which was perfectly expected. I heard him say many times, I started wearing a talus when Rav Aaron Cutler was nifter because of a certain chesed he did for me. Because of what Aaron Cutler did for me, I started wearing a talus when he was nifter. I don't know what that means. I cannot tell you. 
anything more than that. He had these mysterious things. He went to Rigo Park, Queens for Yuntif sometimes. I don't know to whom. He had a cousin in South Africa and a cousin in Tel Aviv. I think Tel Aviv, somewhere in Eretz Israel. And we didn't, he didn't talk about that. But as far as Torah Giants, only this Not. mystery of, of the connection to Iron Color is what I recall. Robert, I have uh, one question. We've asked a number of people the same question, but I'm curious your take. You mentioned right, Eugene's mysticism and the fact that he lived alone and he ne- was never married and uh, you know was somewhat of a recluse during his lifetime. There have been a lot of different rumors about you know uh, magical things that happened to him during the war, after the war, and you know we've asked different people, and the consensus generally of these things were very much uh, embellished. My question to you is: Did you ever have any experience with him where things? clearly out of the ordinary happened that he mentioned to you firsthand or you would experience with him firsthand that you, you can share? I don't recall anything. I do remember that when I came into the academy, there was some rumor that a few years earlier, somebody wanted tickets to a ball game and they couldn't get tickets, but he had them in his drawer. Um, so I don't remember anything of like that, but I will tell you an interesting story. When I was in the academy, the Bulls won the title like every year. The Bulls were the NBA champions at the end of my 91, 92, 93. I know, that I know. I didn't have any doubt about the first three, Pete, or the second three. Yeah. And so, apropos, 93 yeah. was against your future uh, home. The sons, you know, exactly. Sons. So I, I just trying to align it with my life. Because I had actually the reason I was confused is that I remember in Center East watching the game on a watchman during graduation, trying to figure out what it was. But so the Bulls won year in, year out. At some point, the president invited the Bulls to the, to the White House, and Michael Jordan didn't go. And that was like very newsworthy. Jordan's not going to the White House. And I remember Rabbi Eugene saying that morning, next morning, he began the class that day. He says, it's not Derek Heretz. You're invited to the president and it's not Derek Heretz to, to go. It doesn't matter who you are. The president of the United States invited you to go. You have to go to visit the president. You'll see that because of this gaiva, he'll have a downfall. And he had a major downfall. Like, like that was the year of his father's murder and then retirement, whatever that meant, and so on. So I didn't experience magic, but I did experience that where he was like absolutely clear that you can't have lack of Derek Harris for the president of the United States, and that has ramifications. Wow. Wow. Okay, Rabbi Shoshan, thank you so much for coming on. It's you know certain to all of us here that uh, that the work that you do and that the path you've taken and everything you know comes from the inspiration of your Rebbe, but your life is a perpetuation of of his memory and of his legacy. So we certainly thank you for coming on and and sharing your thoughts and memories. I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope that everybody who was touched by him that their lives will be. I know they are Lili Nishmaso, and whoever's listening to this and hopefully inspired to reach back to an earlier time and then because of that reach forward to be be Marbakfochamayim and Marbit Star in their own way will be a continued schus for him. Moreno Rav Mayor Benarav Moshe Zikatzaracha. Amen. Now we will hear from Dr. Jonathan Rich, a close student of Rabbi Eugen's in the early 1990s. I had him as both a junior and a senior, and it was really as I became a senior 
that I formed a connection with him in a way I never connected, you know, with probably even any teacher, let alone, you know, a Rebbe. I looked at him with a sense of awe, uh, tremendous respect. I became very close with him. I used to come to his house on Sunday mornings with a few other guys to learn. And I, he motivated me to even like learn on the side and all that. So by the time we were going to Israel, which probably before that year, I didn't like, should we go to Israel? I don't know. I knew I wanted to go. And not only that, I was like really like one of those guys that was getting off the plane, like ready to learn, which is really uncommon at some of these programs. It takes a few months to get the guys kind of locked in. And so for me, from the get-go, I was pretty like into it, yeah. What was it about Rabbi Eugent, his class or his teaching method or just his personality that, that uh, drew you to him and um, made you more interested in learning and you know succeeding in that? It's probably difficult to pinpoint one thing. I think like, you know, whether whatever we're all searching for spiritually, connection-wise, he had this aura about him that I just I felt was different and felt authentic and almost, I felt God with him. I felt history with him. I felt his father, Rabbi Eugen's father, was Chavrusa with Rav Elchanan Wasserman. And Rav Elchanan Wasserman was the Talmud Muvhak of the Chafetz Chaim. And so the concept of Masora for me is really, really powerful. I think a lot of us do what we do for different reasons. But for me, like, you know, the classic Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you know, letter in the scroll, like something about, you know, perpetuating who we are over time really resonates with me. And I felt like every time he was teaching me something, I felt like I was basically getting taught by the Chafetz Chaim almost by necessity because of how the, how the lineage went. He would tell a, a, a fair number of stories. I like to think all the stories were true because they were very like, oh my gosh, type stories of how he like uh, was on Yom Kippur, didn't want to work on Yom Kippur. So he, he spent the day and a half in water, underneath water, so he didn't have to work. And, and, and how'd you breathe? He goes, I became a fish or something, he'd say, which kind of, you're like, what? But like, maybe he meant like a fish, and I could hold my breath longer. But whatever it was, was just amazing. We'd have these days where it was just question and answer with him. He was always this, he was also this very like short statured man. You almost didn't want to like bump into him. You were afraid you'd hurt him. Um, he'd have this sense of humor about him. He'd make these, yeah. And you could just tell he exuded this true love for not only Torah, and but for his Talmudim and just also, I guess, the notion that he's like alone in this world made me want to bring him happiness. And so, you know, I was also part of the uh, rotation that on Erev Shabbos would go and deliver him food for Shabbos and... Um, you know, we tell these funny stories about when we'd go over to his house on Sundays to learn, he'd sometimes cook and he would cook the most outrageously awful food, but you'd have to eat it and you don't want to make him feel bad. So something about him, um, he told a story about how when he was a six-year-old boy, he was walking in the park with his father and he turned to his father, so it goes, and says, you know, Tati or whatever, I one day I want to learn all of Shas. And he looks at him and he says, Tov. And Tov and Gematria is 17, I believe, which to him meant he needed to learn all of Shah 17 times was the message that he got. So I still remember him being like, yeah, I'm like, I'm finishing up Shah now for the seventh team time to honor 
the commitment I made to my father on the basis of him saying tove to him that he wanted to learn all of Shas, you know. And if you go to his house, you know, there's there's farm everywhere. The whole thing is disheveled, but like he just was just a uh, tremendous uh, influence and uh, on so many of us. And so, um, what a, what a unique opportunity to get to learn with somebody uh, who, frankly, I just use the word holy. He was just a holy man. John, you were one of his later students, right? He he, you know, Sally passed away not many years after you studied under him. Did you have a sense, because he was older during that time, did you have a sense, like, did it ever dawn on you, I'm one of the last, this could be his last few years here? Did you ever sense an end coming and, you know, him thinking about maybe his legacy and what he's passing on, you know, finally to his people? I don't think I ever thought of it in that regard, meaning I wasn't, like, worried about his his mortality, but... Yeah, he was, his appearance was older, you know, I, I just, you treated him also like a grandparent, you know, but it was after high school and after yeshiva where I stayed in touch with him, that's when I think it started to dawn on me more. He started to fall into some health issues and there were some just incredibly wonderful people here locally, not me, who were constantly looking after him and taking good care of him and all of that. And so anytime I'd come back as... I went away to college, I went away to medical school, but when I'd come home, I would try to make it a point to go visit him. And I still remember towards the end, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm going to try just not to get emotional, but I, I walked, I went into his apartment on Gallet Street here in Skokie. He was in bed. I sensed this would maybe be the last time I'd ever see him. And he had this unbelievable smile on his face of, to, when he saw me, it stayed on his face. I kind of did the, you know, when you like back away from the hotel and you walk backwards kind of a thing. I was, I found myself kind of doing that, not so much out of just because that's like a you know, respectful thing to do. I just didn't want to take my eyes off of him. I was afraid I wasn't going to see him again. And so I like, I, f I think I recall continuing to like give him nods and smiles and like, hey, like keep the eye contact and like, you know, I'm going to try to stay in touch with you. And um, I remember getting a call not long after that from a good friend of mine uh, that uh, Rebbe Eugen had passed away. We welcome on Rabbi Aaron Lieb, who lives in Detroit now and was a student of Rabbi Yujint and a close confidant towards the end of Rabbi Yujint's life to the podcast. Rabbi Lieb, do you want to introduce yourself and uh, maybe give us a little bit of a glimpse into how you became acquainted with Rabbi Yujint? Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure. Anything to, to you know, show the covenant to my Rabbi, I'd be honored to do. I heard rumors when I was very young about a special rabbi in the academy from all the older, uh, all the older boys, um, my brother's age and older, uh, that I grew up with and, you know, in camp with. So I knew of the legend of everybody, Eugene, but I didn't really know the person. And then when my brother, I think was in his shear, probably when I was 12 years old around, I joined the Sunday Chabur he had at his house. Most of the boys that were there were, uh, juniors and seniors. And so I was the youngest one amongst them. So I started to attend those Sunday shiurim, and I developed a relationship with him, and then I became his tom his Talmud a few years later. What year was that about? Probably 1992. 
And then it was around 1995 when you were in the academy and had him as your Rebbe or a couple years later? Yeah. So what made Rebbe Yujin unique uh, was that uh, unlike uh, uh, most educators that want the, the highest level, the top shoer, you know, the best boys, you know, and that's it. Rebbe Yujin taught both the highest students in the academy and also the lowest students in the academy. And he had what was called the Mechina program. Basically, it was all the Russians in the academy that were coming from public school. He taught them as well. Um, and I actually got grouped with them uh, my first year in the academy because I was coming from public school and they assumed that I, I needed to be in the Mechina program until I could prove them otherwise. So I actually got a, a very interesting take on, on, on his pedagogical um, ideas and the way he taught at all levels um, when I was a freshman. And the Sunday morning group that was held in his apartment behind the Skokie Public Library? Correct. On Gaelic Street. Correct. When you were young and you were 12 years old, you had a relationship with him and you were learning from him from years. But at what age would you say is when you became closer to him where he perhaps confided in you or talked to you about life? I mean, 12 years old is very young. Right. Well, I will say he was very unique and had a, had an interesting way of connecting to people. And even at the age of 12, the reason why I went, because he pulled me in and he wanted me to be there and he included me. One of the unique things that he, that he did that uh, I've rarely ever seen elsewhere is that when, when, when they were in the middle of learning and if someone, if a boy came in, let's say late to the shear and didn't have, uh, you know, wasn't there for food or didn't eat or drink, he would stop the shear. And he wouldn't continue until everybody had a taste of something, a drink, make everybody feel comfortable. So he, he included me in things like that already when I was very young and not even part of the Hevra. So I developed that relationship with him very young. But really, it took off when I became his official, unofficial Gaba, you'd call it, when Benji Cohen, Benyamin Cohen, went to Israel. He was a year older than me, two years older than me. And when he went to Israel, so he was his Gaba. He took him, you know, got his groceries for him and drove him home. Uh, things like that. So I took over in that role when I got my license, basically, I think the beginning of my uh, end of my sophomore year, right before the summer. So as his Gabai, you were spending a lot of time with him, both both not, not just doing errands for him, but, you know, keeping were you keeping him company? Did you go anywhere with him? Of course, all the time. I mean, he also in those, in those years, unfortunately, he became very sick. So I had to take him to many doctors, many doctor visits. I had to hold his hand through surgeries, operations. Uh, if I could tell you uh, one crazy story to show you how, uh, you know, how sensitive he was to every every person's needs. We were in, he was having surgery in Evanston Hospital and it was a very severe surgery. It was actually, they had to put a, um, a shunt on his brain to stop fluid uh, that was progressing on his brain. And the doctors were, it was just me and him in the hospital and, and they're prepping him for pre-surgery. And they're trying to get to him to understand. He, they want to make sure he understood that, that this is a very serious surgery and uh, that they had his permission to move forward with it. And they're trying to explain to him what's going to happen. And he's, he was very agitated. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't agreeing to what they were saying. And, he, they, and they couldn't figure out what, the, what was going on. And I was standing off, you know, in, in the back against the wall. And they looked at me for help. And, and I said, Rebbe, what's the matter? So it turns out that he wasn't comfortable going into surgery because I was standing and he knew that if I didn't sit before surgery, I'd be standing the whole time. They made them bring me a seat. They sat me down and then he said, everything is fine. Take me to surgery. So just to show you, I, you know, I was, I was probably a 15, 16 year old boy at the time. And all he cared about was my covet of, of me sitting and being comfortable in the chair while he's going off to surgery. Aaron, being 16 years old and in those situations, you, you were a young guy. Did your parents 
you know, support, I, you know, they, I'm sure they understood the gravity of this person, but just within the school also, it's a lot, there, I'm sure there was a lot of pressure and you had to grow up pretty fast in taking care of him. What was that like at that age? And did you ever kind of reflect upon it at the time? Um, that's a good question. I mean, no, it was kind of understood. That's what we did. He had a long-term relationship with all of his Talmudim that goes back years. The Talmudim always took care of him. In fact, you know, he used to put money aside every day to take a taxi cab, you know, home from the academy. And whenever a Talmud would take him home instead, he took that money and put it aside. And after 50 years of putting money aside from Talmudim taking, taking him home, he had enough money. He actually bought an ambulance from Magen David Edom. And he also donated a sizable amount of money. I think it was $100,000 overall, $50,000 to the Academy and $50,000 to Magen David Edom, all just for money that was saved up because Talmudim were giving him rides and taking care of him. So I think it was, you know, I think I understood the mission. And, and obviously, you know, it got pretty intense quickly, you know, when he got sicker. But at the end of the day, my mother also is, an, is, is, a, is a nurse and is in the medical profession. So that made it easier to kind of navigate and help him. Uh, you know, help, help us understand what's going on with him and take care of him. But I just, you know, it's understood that a Rebbe, ta uh, you know, Talmud takes care of his Rebbe. It just, that's what the, the relationship. He took care of me. The Rebbe's job is, the parent's job is to bring the, the, the kid, the um, their child into Olam Hazen. And the Rebbe's job is to bring him to Olam Haba. So any way that I could make his life easier and more bearable, he suffered a lot in his life. So any way that I could make his life more bearable in this world, I, I, I tried to do. Aaron, you were the student, particularly towards the end of his life. Did he confide in you or did he did he talk about his wartime experiences? You know, I'm, I'm sure that dealing with health struggles, he had some indication that he was in the, you know, the last years of his life. Did he go back and talk about, you know, his war experiences, childhood or, you know, coming to Chicago and being a, a young Rebbe at the time? Yes, yeah, so even even way before he was sick. I mean, from the very beginning, he was a very emotional person, and he uh, wore his emotions on his sleeve, and he and he spoke to his Talmudim like they were his friends. Like at the end of the day, he was my best friend. He wasn't just my Rebbe. So he did share a lot of information, both in terms of his struggles when he first came to America as a, as a, you know an only survivor. You're talking about you know Bachar who was in who who was the Magid Shir already in Slobodka at the very young age of sixteen, and they were like I think six survivors that were actually in Slovakia when the war broke out that actually survived out of yeshiva of 600. So he, he was li literally just, you know, one of a only a handful of a few. I believe he was one of only a few people that survived from his entire village in Shaduva, which was a, a town right outside of Slovakia where he was born. And his whole family was basically wiped out. He had distant cousins, you know, in South Africa and in Israel that, that went, you know, the families went there way before the war, but he really didn't have any family. So it was a struggle. Life was a struggle for him. And he came out of the war traumatized by it. And he would share that with anybody he could. I mean, he used to, he used to call the uh, the operator. He would tell the operator and he would just use the operator as his therapist and talk to the operator. He really believed in sharing emotions. He thought that was part of therapy. He was ahead of, ahead of his time in terms of that. So he definitely shared how difficult it was, you know, coming to America. First, he went to Sweden after the war. And he, he literally, he just helped save there were tons and tons of girls that were you know, going off the derech, quote unquote, that were leaving Yiddishkeit. And he helped open up a girl seminary there and saved hundreds of girls so that they wouldn't leave Yiddishkeit. And he came to America and people, unfortunately, people didn't know who he was. They didn't want to hear about the Holocaust. 
it wasn't uh, the time wasn't right to speak about it. And he felt very uncomfortable because he couldn't express himself. And he often felt abused, you know, in certain situations that he was in because, you know, people mistreated him. He was a young boy and uh, he was probably, you know, in his early 20s. And he knew Shas, he knew Kolotar Akula. You're talking about a guy, you're talking about somebody who was such an evil at his bar mitzvah. His bar mitzvah lasted nearly a year. Uh, his father invited over every morning, they'd invite over different people in the town and they'd make a, they'd make a minion and they'd have breakfast and he'd start repeating. He had to repeat Meseches Kasubis, Baal Peh, for his bar mitzvah. So you're talking every day, just read another page, another page, Baal Peh. You're talking about somebody who had tremendous ideas in Torah that was very young. And unfortunately, because of that, he struggled when he came to America. And not everybody understood who he was. I think it took a long time for people to realize who he was. Just piggybacking on, uh, on Jordan's question, um, seeing that you were, again, sort of one of his you know, last close Talmudim, did he ever, you know, during that period, express any regrets? Uh, I mean, you know, he never got married. Uh, he sort of lived, uh, you know, in, in an area that was not populated by a lot of Jews uh, for, for many years. Did he ever... Was that a conscious decision? Did he ever struggle with that? Did he ever mention anything to you about any difficulties or anything like that any, and challenges he he had during his lifetime um, as he saw that he was sort of you know near the end of his days? Excellent question. I, I wouldn't connect it at all to near the end of his days from the very beginning. I mean, I went to the beginning, but when I was old enough, you know, when I was in YU, certainly he used to always tell me, you need to start dating, you need to get married, learn from my mistakes, don't wait, get married. Uh, it was not conscious. He definitely tried uh, to go on dates, but you're talking about a human being that was emotionally tortured, physically tortured, emotionally tortured. He had a very hard time connecting, I think, to people, you know, his own age, probably, and his, and you know, and certainly the opposite, the gender, uh, would have been very difficult for him. He told me about numerous dates he went on, and he, you know, and he just, he messed up, and it, nothing ever worked out. But at the that same was when time, he was, though, Aaron, that was when he was younger that he was going on dates? Correct. When he was much, when he first came to America, but you have to understand also, you know, theologically speaking, he was part of a group of students of Rabbi Chanan Wasserman. Um, his Rebbe was a, he, he had many, many different Rebbeim. He learned in all the yeshivas in Europe because as an Ilui, they sent you around to different yeshivas. But Slobodka was his main yeshiva, and at some point he told me he learned in Baranovich. But I know that at the end of Rabbi Chanan's life, he was uh, in Slobodka. And I know he told me that at a certain point, there was a group of students along with Rabbi Hanan that took upon themselves certain Isurim, certain, um, what's the word? Certain types of, not, not, not Isurim in that sense, but Isurim Shoava, certain types of uh, chastations. I don't know what, what you'd call it in English. Curses, uh, you could almost call them. Uh, to try to, uh, you know, take the blow away from Kalan Yisrael to stop the, the suffering. And he, he accepted upon himself the, um, the idea of loneliness and being alone. It doesn't mean he actively tried to be alone. To be alone. It just meant that, you know, theologically speaking, he kind of knew he'd end up alone because he accepted upon himself to be alone for the sake of Claudius Yisrael. How that works, I have no idea. I'm not on his level to understand that. But um, there was a group of Talmud that took upon themselves different, different things, uh, punishments, so to speak. And he took upon himself the punishment of loneliness. So it's not a total surprise that he ended up alone, but uh, he wasn't alone. He was like Benazza. He had you know, thousands of Talmudim at the end of the day, and his Talmudim took care of him. There, there, there are tens, if not more, of kids running around, including my own, that are named Mayor, that are named after him, that are his children, quote unquote. During his time at the academy, at least from Josh's perspective, it was it was a common theme for students to talk about, you know, legends about Rabbi Yushant, 
miracles. There was a, a particular story about him turning into a fish in order to cross a river. Did you see anything mysterious about Rabbi Yushin of that sort in your close proximity to him? Okay, that's an excellent point. And I actually remember hearing those stories also when I was a kid. And that's part of what intrigued me about him. So I will say that I definitely, definitely saw mysterious, miraculous things. I have plenty of stories that I could share. I think there are lots of stories that got embellished, that got you know turned into legends, that were half-truths, I think. So in terms of that particular story with the fish, I do know a story where basically every time I think about it, I, I, I cringe. It's, it's impossible to even comprehend, but he, he didn't want to work one Yom Kippur in the camps. So he decided he was going to hide basically in the latrine. So he just jumped in and stayed, you know, in the latrine for, you know, 25 hours, whatever it was. And I, I can't imagine what, what kind of Yom Kippur that was, what that was like. But I think things like that, you know, were, were stories that did happen and, and they got turned into legends. But I could tell you all my own personal stories with him that are very, very crazy. I mean, the one thing about Rabbi Eugen is he was a very normal person, very down to earth. He liked to joke around. He was a funny guy. He used to sound, he used to sign his name, the other MJ. For those in the 90s, Michael Jordan was uh, very popular in Chicago back then. So he was the other MJ. He just joked around a lot. He was a normal guy. But at the same time, he did have this, Kabbalistic, uh, mystical side to him, which can't be ignored. And I think that's where the legends came from. And there was a long tradition, by the way, in the Lithuanian world of uh, Lithuanian Kabbalists. But unfortunately, they've gotten forgotten, you know, over the course of history and the, the more Hasidic, you know, Maiselach stories have taken over. But when Ryujin was 12 years old, he, a new Kabbalah yeshiva had opened up in Poland and he wanted to go. And uh, his father wanted him to go the traditional Lithuanian route and wanted him to go to Slobodka. So he made a compromise and he hired for him, a, a, you know, he said to him, if you go to Slobodka, then I'll hire you a private uh, Kabbalah tutor. So he did begin learning Kabbalah at the age of 12. Um, and even though if you were to ask him, was he a Kabbalist, he would deny it. I personally answered the phone many times in his apartment when Kabbalists from Yerushalayim used to call. Uh, for there, there were a few big yeshivas there that were Kabbalah yeshivas. They used to call and ask Mashailas. So I definitely know that, uh, that he was a Kabbalist. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a few different stories. I'll I got to tell you the craziest one first. And that is when I was growing up, I grew up in a, in a small community outside of Chicago before I moved to Skokie, uh, you know, the age of 14, 13, I moved to Skokie. And uh, I grew up in a small town and there was this, this gentleman in a shul with a long white beard. And he used to always talk to me and my brother about baseball cards. And one day... My father pulls my brother and me aside and says, you see that guy with the long beard, always talking to you guys, stay away from him. Don't talk to him. And we're like, why? What's the matter? And he said he killed his wife. Uh, and sure enough, the story goes, apparently he uh, got angry, murdered his wife, and he got sentenced to jail 25 years to life. And after 25 years, he was rehabilitated. The rabbi of our shul worked in the prison systems. And next thing you know, he's dominating in shul when he gets, when he gets uh, out, of shul, uh, out of jail. That's when I was about uh, eight or nine years old. Fast forward 10 years later, and I'm a bucker in the academy. And I was waiting in the hall to take Rabbi Eugen home. They used to have benches in the, in the hallways of the academy. And I was waiting on a bench outside uh, the main office. Uh, shortly after Rabbi Eugen went in for this meeting, he comes out and I've, I've never seen him hurt. He was literally scurrying, trying to run as fast as he could. And he couldn't really, you know, he walked a limp because of all the blows he took during the war. 
He had a hard time walking, and he was almost almost running down the hallway with a scared look on his face. I said, Rebbe, what's the matter? What's wrong? And he said, Rebbe, Lieb, there's a man in my office. He called me. He wanted to come talk to me about Kabbalah. He had some questions on Kabbalah. I walked into my office. I took one look at him, and I ran away. He said, get him out of there. So I, I ran into his office, see who this guy was, who's harassing my Rebbe. And I took one look at the guy, and it was that guy from my youth. I threw him out of the academy, and I went back to Rebbe. And I said, Rebbe, that man murdered his wife. And his only response was, ah, that makes sense. So, you know, anybody I tell that story to, if I were to tell it to somebody, oh, that guy murdered his wife, he'd be like, how do you know? <laughs> you know, like, how do you know that story? He never even asked me how I knew. He never asked me anything about it. He just took one look at the guy, knew something was terribly off, and ran away. So that, that that's one story. I could tell you another story. When I was a sophomore, I believe, I missed the first month of school. I was having terrible migraines. I had MRIs. I had CAT scans. They didn't know what was wrong with me. And I never had this problem before. And I was just, I had these awful, awful headaches. I couldn't function. And uh, one Sunday, when everybody was giving Shear at his house, I was in the kitchen preparing the food. And I, I remember I was taking something out of the freezer. I had the freezer door open. And I had this terrible, sharp pain in my head. I, I don't know what was, go what was going on. Terrible, terrible headache. And uh, all of a sudden, Rebbe Eugen appears behind me in the kitchen, asked me what's the matter. And I told him, you know, I had these, these, these headaches, you know, and uh, he said, why don't you tell me? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I have magic hands. And he told me that Rebbe Hanan Wasserman, when he was a little boy, Rebbe Hanan Wasserman had a really bad back. He's a tall guy, bad back. And he used to ask me to rub his back when he would learn the Harusa and he would heal his back. So I said, okay. So he said he could heal me. And he says, just believe, believe that a Kajmar can heal you. And he took his hand and he took his hand in, in a weird way. And he put a finger underneath my chin and a finger on my temple. And he mumbled Sukim to himself. I don't know what he said. And next thing I know, the headache is gone. And here we are, you know, 30 years later, I rarely ever have headaches. You know, I wouldn't believe such a story if I heard it from somebody else, but that happened to me. So there are definitely miraculous things like that that I've encountered. Another interesting story is one day I got to the academy early. He used to go to Dafyomi there, and I saw Rebbe before, before davening, and he was very animated. He was very lit up. I've never seen him like that. And I said, I said, what, what, I said what's going on? And he told me a miracle happened to him this morning. You know, he used to get to the academy very early. Eric Gutstein used to drop him off before I think he went to daven at Ishul, and it was very, very early in the morning, and he used to cross... Pratt over there. I think the store was called uh, Quick Stop. Josh, you can correct me, whatever, whatever it was called. And uh, yeah, Quick Stop. And he used to go there and get a coffee. And this one particular morning, he was having trouble crossing the street, walking, and a car was barreling down and was about to hit him. And he said a man and a talus came, lifted him up and put him on the other side of the street. And he told me that was it was the Orachayim HaKadosh that saved his life. So, I mean, stories like that, you don't just hear every day. Uh, again, I wasn't there when he was saved, but I was there to see how how animated and how lit up he was after this whole mice had happened. You know, so he, not not every day did you hear these kinds of stories from from a Rebbe. So he also was was renowned for being able to find things that were lost, and I had heard about this, but I never really had the opportunity to uh, to question him and, and to see. And one time it was my senior year, and I you know I was I uh, know my junior year, sorry my junior year. 
I take that back. Sophomore year, I, I didn't play my junior year. My sophomore year of high school, I was in the basketball team. And I had lost my uh, red aces bag with my uniform and the warm-ups in it. Uh, in, in those days, you didn't get to keep it. You had to give it back. I couldn't find it anywhere. I didn't know where it was. And the school wanted to charge me a large amount of money for it. So, you know, I looked everywhere and like it's went on for weeks. And then like, I just didn't know what to do. So I went to Rebbe and, and I told him I was distressed. I couldn't find this. And again, he said, well, why don't you come to me sooner? So he sat there for a minute thinking to himself. And he told me, go down to the base madrash and look under something. So I went down to the base madrash and I searched everywhere. I searched the cabinets. I searched under the tables. I searched everywhere. And the last place to look so I, I couldn't find it. I went back upstairs, told him I couldn't find it anywhere. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, look, he goes, look under something, look inside, look inside something, open something. So I went, I thought I opened everything down there. I went back down there and I noticed that under the shulchan, there were doors that opened up and I looked under the shulchan and buried under, I couldn't even see it, buried under a pile of talisim was my red academy bag. How it got there, I have no idea, but Rabbi Ugent in those days could not walk the stairs. He did not go down to Mincha. He did not. He, he left before. He did not walk downstairs. He was never in that Beit Midrash. I have no idea how he knew it was there. And even if he were in there, he would not have been physically able to bend down and clear away those taluses and see it there. It seems to me like Rabbi, Rabbi Yushin had this mystical side to him and people told stories about him, but he wasn't really afraid of sharing parts of that side of him, right? Meaning it, Josh has shared that uh, students would ask him straight out, you know, whether certain things happened and certain, you know, certain legends about him actually occurred, and he wouldn't outright deny them. And in fact, you know, like you, even though you were a close student, the story about him crossing the street and being carried to save from a car, he didn't shy away from sharing that with you. Do you think a part of him wanted to reveal some of that hidden side of himself? It's a good question. Yes and no, because at the same time, he did tell me, especially with that story with the with the Orachayim, he told me, don't tell anybody. He told me not to tell anybody that story. He said, because they're not going to believe me. So he, I think he felt that there were lots of things that he knew people couldn't believe and couldn't handle. So he would only tell those that he was close with. I know I know of a different story that to this day, I haven't told anybody. I'm not going to say only because I don't know whether he promised me not to tell anybody. I don't know if, if that promise you know, la lasted beyond his death as well. But there was a different story that I'm referring to where something else miraculous had happened. And, you know, you could tell that he didn't want people to, to know certain things. But he also, you have to understand something about him. He was also the most humble person I've ever met. Like, like there was nobody more humble. He was so humble that I don't think anybody would even question whether or not he wanted people to know them, like, in an arrogant way. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was purely to give covered to Shemayim. Everything by him was to show you know, the, the brilliance of the Torah, the brilliance of Chazal, you know, as an educator, and we could talk about this for a long time, as an educator, his whole job was to show how much the student knew. You know, if you had a kasha, if you had a question, you went to him, the first thing he would say to you is, Reb Lieb, the Gemara says that a Talmud Chacham's question is half the answer. So knew what's the answer? And he'd make you think of the answer. And then you'd go back to him and tell him your answer. And either he'd agree or he'd argue back and tell you to think again and go back and forth. He wouldn't just outright say the answer. You know, and his whole point of his shear and everything about him was to bring out the beauty, you know, in Chazal and, 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 the, and the beauty of Hashem's world. And it was, it was all about getting the Talmud to appreciate that and understand that, not about his brilliance, not about his, you know, 
his abilities. It was never about his abilities. It was all about Chazal. So even when he had tremendous Chiddush, for example, I remember we were learning one time and he said over this Chiddush and he, and, and he didn't quote who it was from right away. So I said, did Rabbi make that up right now? He didn't want to say he made it up. He said, no, no, I heard it from Rabbi Hanan. And I questioned him further. I said, well, did you hear it from Rabbi Like, how could you? And he's like, well, not really. He goes, but everything I say can be attributed to Rabbi because if I didn't learn by Rabbi Hanan, I'd have absolutely nothing. So the point is, he wasn't he wasn't trying to say, oh, look how bright and brilliant I am that Rabbi Hanan said it. He was trying to say that, that anything that I am is because of my Rebbe, so therefore give credit to him. Aaron, if I'm not mistaken, you were with Rabbi Yuji when he passed away? Well, yes, I was in the hospital with him when he passed away. They, they wouldn't actually let me in the back at that point. Um, so I was in the room, uh, in the waiting room, waiting for him, but they let me in right after he passed away. At that point, did he say anything to you or leave you with any uh, kind of final uh, you know, thoughts or something he wanted uh, you to perpetuate uh, with regards to his legacy or the way he lived his life or anything that you kind of, from those you know, real last moments, um, anything that sticks out to you as uh, even to this day as sort of something you remember and uh, you, know, you try to, again, kind of perpetuate the person that he was? No, I mean, I don't think any of that took place before he died in, you know, in terms of the actual uh, Maisa Patira, when he passed away, he was, he came into the, it was actually on, on, on Sukkis. It was uh, Yom Tov Shani. We got the phone call very early in the morning that he was being brought to the hospital. So I started walking from my house in Skokie to Evans to, um, he was taken to St. Francis actually. And by the time that I got there, he was already, um, you know, unconscious basically. And uh, I don't think he knew what was what was going on at that point, and he passed away soon after. But I but I will tell you though, he you know, he used to he, uh, tell all of his talmidim. He used to he used to give me his chiddushi Torah and say, "Go publish it in your name." And I'm like, like Rebbe, that's not how it works. Like you know, <laughs> uh, but he 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 didn't he he used to if a boy was going to Israel and learning Maseches Makos, he'd give him his folder, all his chiddushim, and say, "Go take it with you." Like he you know he didn't he he was he was humble like that. He wanted everyone to learn. And he didn't care that his name was on it. You know, he did he did publish books in the 1950s, but he never actually even finished the series or went on to publish more books. He had a lot of a lot of things in manuscript, but he um, you know, he 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 felt he was too humble. He did he always felt like he, it was too much seeking cover. And and when any, whenever anything bad happened to him, let's say he got an illness or sick, he always attributed it to seeking cover. And he didn't want to seek cover. So he used to tell his Talmudin, take it, publish it in your names. But of course, nobody's going to do that. Aaron, you touched upon a little bit earlier that he struggled when he came here. And some of that struggle was kind of being, you know, a, uh, a survivor who was tormented and he had come from this background and perhaps had a difficult time connecting with, you know, the, the community here. There were some that survived from Slobodka, others that had uh, within the Torah world that he encountered in Lithuania. And he's here in Chicago. Did he ever reconnect with you know the people from the yeshiva world of his youth so i'll tell you this they definitely all held him in high regard and i don't know whether he was in touch with them i think he probably was in his younger years before my time but i'll tell you when when i was in the academy of shmuel kamenetsky and he should listen be well i know he needs before shlema before shlema he came to speak to the talmudim in the academy when i was in the academy and before he even started speaking he literally opened up begging Mechila, asking Mechila from Rabbi Yujint, because he said in his words that when Rabbi Yujint was a young Talmud Chacham learning in Slobodka, I was a young boy running around causing, causing Batala. 
So he, he was respected by, by many of those people who, who knew him. I'll tell you another story, actually, going back to the mystical side. So after he died, we, we flew to Israel with him to bury him in Israel. And when we got off the plane, we were greeted by the Rosh Yeshiva of Slobodka in Hebron. Um, I don't remember his first name, but it was Avram Gerdinsky's son. I think he's unfortunately recently passed away. And he was, I think, also a young man um, in Slobodka in those days. And he greeted us at the airport because it, it was Arab Shabbos and, he, and he, he wouldn't be able to make it into Yerushalayim and back to his family for Shabbos. So he wanted to make sure to show the last Kavad Achron to, to Rabbi Yujin. So he met us when we got off the airplane. I don't remember if I asked him or if he said, but I know that Rabbi Yujin only visited, only visited Israel once. He only went on a trip once. It was a well-known trip. I think it was in the 70s. But he told me that it's not true. He was there all the time. And I even said, well, recently? And he said, yes. And I know that over the last you know, 10 years I knew him, there's no way he went to Israel. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. But that's another one of those stories where you can't really explain. Every morning he would wake up and he would have a pasuk pop into his head. And he knew based upon that pasuk what would happen that day. So there are various days where I met him in the morning. And he would tell me what that pasuk was. And then later on in the afternoon, he would kind of review what happened, explain to me why what happened fit into that pasuk. There were other times where I didn't know what the pasuk was. Things happened that day. And then he told me the pasuk afterwards. And it was incredible to see the connection between things that happened, both generally speaking, but also in, in our particular lives that applied to that pasuk. So it was a very interesting. He, you know, I think he, he understood that to be some kind of ruach hakodesh. He didn't shy away from that from that kind of uh, knowledge. Do you think that it was just with you that he was sharing those types of those types of ideas? No, I think I mean I think I was the closest one to him because I spent the most amount of time with him, so I heard the most of it. But if you were to talk to any of my classmates in, from my in my generation, you know that era, the late nineties until until basically he was done in the academy, I think you'd hear very similar things. But he was a very complicated person. I mean, you're talking about a huge Talmud Chacham who was, who was brilliant in the classic Lithuanian sense, but also, you know, a huge, you know, Anav and a mystic who had a, a side to him that nobody could really understand or, or really even appreciate. But he was also emotionally destroyed, you know, by the war. I could tell you that, um, you know, after the war, he had tremendous, tremendous survivor's guilt. And he, he, he didn't know how he was going to go on and how he'd survive, and um, really nothing would console him. The only thing that consoled him was Torah, basically. I mean, he often tells the story of Choni Hamagel, who disappeared for years, you know, 70 years. And when he came back to the base Medrash, and uh, he went, went to his house first, and, and, they, and his grandson slammed the door in his face. They didn't know who he was. Then he went to the base Medrash, and they didn't know who they were quoting things in his name. And he said he was Choni, and they laughed at him. And uh, they slammed the door in his face to kick them out. He went outside and said, oh, Chavrusa, oh, Misusa, right? Either give me a learning partner, give me Torah, or give me death. And Rabbi Yujin used to ask, you know, I don't understand why didn't he ask for death after he went home? Imagine being away from home for 70 years, not having any family. And you go back to what you think is your family, the people that are supposed to support you and love you. And you go to them and they laugh in your face and close the door on you. They don't recognize you. Why didn't he then say right then and there, you know, either give me family or kill me. It was only after he went to the base medrash that he did that. So Rabbi Yujin used to say, and imagine, think about where he was coming from. His whole family wiped out. 
used to say because the greatest part of life is family. Family is the greatest part of life, but it's not life. Torah is life. So what consoled him after the war was Torah, and that was it. You know, while while every, all of his peers were out, you know, getting married, having simchas, he was he was learning Torah. He sat and learned Torah for seventy plus years and did nothing else. I mean, you're talking about a man who who completed shas every year. You know, he at least finished shas seventeen years when I knew him, seventeen times by the time that I knew him. But you're talking about somebody who made a him every year. We usually did it uh, during the nine days. We had a big meat fest. I was in charge of getting all the meat. He would finish Shas, but the amazing thing is, he told me nobody even knew this, but that every single time he learned Shas, Bavli, he also learned Yerushalmi. He never once learned a Masechus Bavli without learning it in Yerushalmi. So you're talking about somebody who learned Kol Kulo nearly yearly, you know, for 70 plus years. So he, he was a complicated person, you know, because his, his emotions, I mean, I used to drop him off at home. I would drive him to his house after the end of the day. And he, he, you know, I'd pull into his uh, little driveway there of the apartment at Gaelic Street. And he would look at me and say, I believe I'm ready to take me home. Take me home. And I would say, uh, Rebbe, you know, I, I, we just pulled up. Here's your house. And he would sigh and he would, he, would just, he would just laugh and give a little sigh and say, no, this is not my home. I don't have a home. You know, he also was a little boy, you know, who yearned for his family that was taken away in Europe. He would have given anything to have them back. And he was constantly yearning, you know, for, for a sense of home. And even though he found it in his Talmudim, he didn't, you know, he didn't really have a home. He didn't have, he didn't have that. Obviously, he was, um, it was unique in all of those characteristics. But Chicago, after the war, did have plenty of survivors living in the city. And there were also great rabbinical scholars. Did he have yeah. in particular maybe in his younger years or even in the later years, did he have colleagues and friends or Chavrusas for that matter that he could feel connected to? On some level, I think he did connect to them. I think he was, he was, I think, friendly and close with all the Rosh Yeshivas. You know, he was in Skokie Yeshiva back in those days, you know, and I think he was uh, close with, with, with Ray Fassman, you know, Ray Rogo, all, all the old Rosh Yeshivas. I think he was close with, but at the same time, I don't think he could connect to them fully because of the experiences he went through. He had a hard time emotionally connecting to people that weren't survivors. I know he was very close with certain families in Chicago, the Bassmans. Mrs. Bassman, you know, used to make him food every week. And that, by the way, also is a beautiful story. Another miraculous story, I'll, I'll just tell you very quickly, is that every Friday, part of the job of being his guy is, you, you know, you go shopping for food that he needed, take him to appointments, but also every Friday, Arab Shabbos, There'd be food prepared for him and a, in a brown bag left behind a door in an apartment on Francisco Avenue, not too far from the old kosher carry. And you'd pull up and you'd literally just uh, buzz the buzzer. They'd buzz you in. You'd open the door and uh, the bag would be right behind the door. You'd take it and you'd go. So it was actually Mrs. Bassman who prepared the food for him. And a couple of times I was okay to go upstairs and schmooze with her, you know, when uh, when the food wasn't ready. But uh, it was always mostly anonymous. Food was picked up and, and brought to his house. So one time I had got a good parking spot in front of the apartment there. And then I went, I think, to Kosher Carry for other places. I went shopping and I got a a whole bunch of stuff. I probably had, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, you know, ba plastic bags, shopping bags. And I went and got the, the brown bag. And I don't know, I must have got distracted. I put them all in the trunk of my car. And uh, happened in the car. I must have been in a hurry. And I drove off. And in those days, I drove kind of crazy. 
And uh, at some point I looked behind my rear view mirror and I saw all this garbage behind me in the street. And I was a little perplexed, what is this? And then I looked again and I realized, oh my gosh, I had left all of his food on the trunk of my car. I never put it into the trunk. I don't know what the heck happened. I, I started freaking out because this is all of his food for Shabbos. This is everything he has. And uh, I drove pretty fast and crazy in those days. So pretty much all the food was gone. I got out of the car and I went to the back and every single bag that I had purchased and bought was, was strewn about the street for the last mile, gone. And the only thing that remained on the back of the car was this brown bag of the Shabbos food that Mrs. Bassman made for him. I have no idea how it could have stayed on there. Like it, it, it was impossible. So I got to his apartment, I got to his house. I told him, you know, first I had to apologize. I didn't have any other stuff. And I told, of course, he didn't make you feel bad. You know, he never would do that. And I told him what happened and it was a miracle. And he said, yes, it's in the schus of my mother. And I said, what do you mean? And he told me that the growing up in this village, Shaduva, there were many poor people who, who didn't have food to eat. And what they would do is though, you could tell when people were eating because they all warmed up food in their, in their ovens and their fireplaces and then smoke would rise up and you would see, oh, they're making something. So what the poor people would do, they didn't want people to know they were poor. So they used to just take wood and burn wood so that no one would know they were poor and they didn't have anything. So his mother used to find out, try to figure out who was poor and she didn't want to embarrass them. So she used to make mayor, Rabbi Eugene wake up very little at the age of four or five, six years old. He'd wake up very early before the sun came out and she'd make food and she'd put it into these little brown bags and he would stealthily walk it to these people's houses and he would put it behind their door basically so no one would see and they'd wake up and they'd have food. So he said that in the schuss of his mother, the food got delivered to him safely and secure, no problems. Do you feel like within the broader community, he was known and appreciated or was he a mystery? I think all the above. Uh, first of all, I think, the, I think the Academy did a very good job, both under Ray Myers, under Matanke, of selecting boys that were not just good learners, uh, potentially good learners, but that were serious learners. And they generally tried to give them serious students. So especially in the, in the earlier years, I, I can't speak to, but in the later years, I feel like he had very good conjure of serious students that understood the mission, understood what they were doing with him and why they were learning with him and what there was to gain from him. So, you know, it, it could be even in Yoel's day that, that, that uh, I think it's still true. I think it's before his day earlier on, I think where there were more, more issues, you know, back in the days of the Skokie Yeshiva when he was a dorm counselor, I feel like he, he often felt overlooked and felt like they just viewed him as a single guy who was a dorm counselor and they didn't really appreciate or understand, you know, his potential, so to speak. But I know for sure, you know, Ravaran Salvechik did, Rav Kreisworth, you know, for sure did. And by the way, you know, Rav Kreisworth was actually um, a chavrusa of his. I had, I had rabbis in Chicago tell me that Rabbi Eugen was actually older than he was. My birthday is June 13th. We always celebrated Rabbi Eugen's June 15th, two days after mine. Uh, June 15th, 1924, he told me he was born. But they tried to convince me he was older because when he was in Slovakia, his chavrusa was a Chaim Kreisworth. But I could tell you this, I know from talking to Rabbi Ugent that Rabbi Ugent had been in Slobodka for six years already by the time that Rabbi Kreisworth got there. So he, even though he was a lot younger, he was considered an alterbacher and was a magicier. So that's why he was given Rabbi Kreisworth as a chavrus. You know, it doesn't mean he was actually older. He just was an Eli. He went there at the age of 12. After his death, there, there was this question about his writings and his manuscripts and some of his possessions. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about that experience that you had? I mean, I don't really know much about, you know, anything in particular other than that he has lots. He, he, he claimed he had, if you look back on newspaper clippings from the 50s, when, he, you know, the Sentinel, when he published his first book, it talks about having, having a diary, you know, like a daily diary he kept. And he used to always say that he used to find things, scraps to write on, because that's how he eased his mind. He had to write even during the, during the Holocaust, where he found things he wrote. But to my knowledge, nobody ever found, you know, he, he said it was in the safety deposit box. Uh, to my knowledge, nobody ever found that particular journal or, or diary. His Chidushri Torah we have. I mean, he used to give out Chidushri Torah to everyone. Uh, and we already were in high school. We're working on editing and trying to publish his Chidushri Torah. You know, the Lazovskis, you know, had republished one of his books. They were working on it. Um, so there is Chidushri Torah. The problem is it's all, you know, kind of, it needs to be maintained and kept up because it's uh, crumbling. He wrote on napkins, he wrote on paper towels, he, I mean, he wrote on plates, he wrote, he wrote on all kinds of things. He wrote on paper, very old, and he didn't, he didn't take good care of it. He just threw it into a folder and he'd pull it out when people had questions and they wanted to show them his, you know, things on it. And he'd give them to students to take to Israel with him. I know Dan Geisler told me, I think, that... Uh, or you can just give him folders of his Chidusha Torah when he went to Israel to study and learn. So the Chidusha Torah, that, 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 there's plenty of it. We have that. But the actual journal that he had, the diary, nobody's ever been able to locate or find that. What about the Sefer Torah? So after the war, he said that, uh, you know, the Nazis collected all of the valuables and they kept them in storehouses. And they used to call it uh, Canada. For some reason, they all thought Canada was this wealthy uh, province back then. So I don't know if that was specifically in Bergen-Belsen or where, where that was, um, but basically people would go to these storehouses after the war and they would take silver, they would take gold, they would take whatever they could, you know, if they were allowed to. My guess is this is probably before, uh, you know, there was any semblance of, uh, of control of the camps after the Americans and British took over. But basically he said he went to one of these storehouses and it was full of Sifre Torah. And he found a very small one. It was not so big. I don't know, maybe 14 inches, very small Torah. There was blood all over it. He took it. And he said, and this is a great Mr. Haskell, that when he got to the boat, you know, to depart, to leave Europe, everyone was afraid of typhus. There were tremendous typhus, typhus outbreaks. So any item that you had with you, you basically had to leave behind. So all these people that tried taking gold and silver, they had to leave it all behind. But the Sefer Torah, because it was the Holy Scripture, they let him take it with him. So the, the Musar Haskell is if you try to take gold and silver from this world, you end up with nothing. If you take Torah, you'll take it with you. So what's miraculous about that Torah itself is that we used to lean from it. We used to daven in his house. We used to lean from it. And there was blood stains all over it. So obviously, whoever was holding was probably killed with it. And he said he had to do a lot of repairs to the Torah, but it was a miracle because not one Shem Hashem, which would have possibly the Torah, was, was problematic. And there was no blood anywhere near Shem Hashem. That's the Torah he had. And I, I was told, um, I don't know if he was joking at the time, but he, he mentioned that he had gotten offered like $6 million to the Torah. But of course, he would never sell it because it's also to sell a Sefer Torah. So the Torah was in his possession. And then after he passed away, he didn't have a will. So I believe the state took it over, and I believe the cousin, I, I believe they gave it to the cousins in Israel. And last I heard, it was somewhere in use in Israel. I think uh, Gidon Shoshan knows knows more. I think he's seen it. One of the purpose of the episode that we're doing is obviously Rabbi Yujint is well known for generations of academy students, and 
you know, by some people um, that lived in Chicago and knew him or knew of him. Chicago has grown over, uh, you know, the past couple decades. There's a very large community. And to a lot of people, a lot, uh, maybe perhaps a lot of young people, but even, you know, older people in Chicago, he's not remembered. I personally pulled 10 random listeners for, uh, of our podcast who had no idea who he was and, and didn't remember him. Is there, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe one final thought, you know, to give a glimpse uh, of this person to keep his memory alive and to perpetuate that you want to share with uh, the listeners? I would say don't get distracted by, by the stories and the mystic side of his personality. Uh, when push comes to shove, he, he mostly focused on Midos and Hasmoda. He used to always say on the Pasuk, What does Ma mean? What does Mem He mean? It stands for Midos and Hasmoda. That you have to be very kind, you have to have tremendous Midos, and you have to have Hasmoda. You have to really put the work in, the toil, the effort to accomplish in learning. And his Midos were legendary. I mean, I could tell you stories where when he was in the hospital, he used to task me with going and buying candy because he would not let anyone, a nurse, an orderly, he would not let anybody into his room before giving them a candy and after giving them a candy. They had to take candies. And he was so beloved in the hospital. I mean, we spent the better part of my junior and senior year, we had sheer every day with him in the hospital, basically, either in his home or in, or in the hospital. And I can't tell you, we actually had, there was a nurse, there was a, there was a, um, there was a Muslim nurse who was so moved by, by him that actually converted because of him. And used to meet with him in his house on Sundays after because she was just so moved by him, his, his relationship with his Talmudim. You know, we used to go Saturday nights have Malava Malka and the singing was so beautiful. He used to send us around to the other rooms and all the patients requested that we'd go into their rooms to sing for them. So he was always somebody that would forgo his own kavod, that would forgo his own honor to help somebody else. You know, going back to the days in the camps, he, um, he, he used to have these incredibly long Hasidish Amaisalach that never ended. And I remember he used to tell them every Friday, he would start telling a story and continue it the following Friday. And it went on for six months. The story would never end. And that's because he had to create these stories that he knew and, and change them because in the camps, people were committing suicide every night. And the only thing that kept them alive from jumping on the fence was they wanted to come back that next night to hear the end of the story. And he couldn't end the story. So he kept them going. So he just was an incredible person all around that was humble, that affected everybody who was around him. And I think, you know, our goal is to learn from him and to focus on our own Midos, to focus on our own Hasmada and what we can do better to, to help the world around us, whether it's in, in Torah learning or whether it's just in Derek Eretz and Midos. Aaron, well, listen, you yourself have become, you know, very respected uh, Talmud Chacham and educator. Uh, I don't know leading... about that. I don't know about that, but I'll take it. <laughs> But, you know, lead, leading uh, a school in Detroit, I'm sure your Rebbe would be very proud of you. And we appreciate you coming on. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Colty, all the best. I have here my co-hosts, Yol and Josh. Yol and Josh were both students of Rabbi Yushin in their time in the academy. And, you know, um, we've had a lot of, you know, special guests that had very close bonds with Rabbi Yushin from their time and then and afterwards from their time in the academy. Yol and Josh, I think, are, are maybe more representative of kind of like the typical average student 
that had Rabbi Yujin maybe had a good experience, perhaps maybe a bad experience, but were not particularly close with Rabbi Yushin outside of the classroom. So I kind of want to get their experiences and their thoughts and feelings about Rabbi Yushin. I think we'll start with Josh, please. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, my experience with Rabbi Yushin I had in my senior year, enjoyed the class. I wouldn't say I was particularly close with him, certainly not at the beginning of the year. I mean, I didn't take his class seriously. I was not present a lot, both physically not present because I was elsewhere. And even if I was in the class, I wasn't you know, really paying much attention or trying too hard. I was a kid and I was, you know, enjoying being a kid at that time. So I don't think that I was, unlike most of the people we've interviewed, I was not into learning. I was not into, I did not appreciate having a person uh, like that as my, as my Rebbe. And we were, again, we, you know, I, I did once in a while go on Sunday um, just because some of my friends were going and I just thought I would try it out. But I, I wouldn't say that I had any particular, particularly close interactions with him, um, either inside or outside of the classroom. One thing I do remember vividly to this day, though, is, you know, in the middle of my year, senior year, as we've discussed on this podcast, I had a uh, incident in the school and I was asked to leave for a while. And I remember when I came back, which was, uh, you know, about a couple months later, you know, I was back in the classroom and Rabbi Ugent went out of his way to make me feel welcome. You know, his warmth was, I remember that I was like, wow, he's like, he really cared that I was gone and now I'm back. And he really it made me, I mean, to, to, to the extent that I remember, again, 30 years later, I still remember the feeling that I had walking in when he, you know, shook my hand. He was like, we're so happy to have you back. My Hebrew name is Svizelik. And he said, Svizelik, so happy. we're so happy to have you back. It wasn't the same without you. And again, I wasn't someone that was particularly close with him or added anything to the class. He even called my parents and just said, uh, you know, we're, we're so happy to have your son back. And he, he had so much to the class. And I think he really felt that at that point I was sort of like a wounded bird. And I, I you know, in my head now, I kind of, you know, looking back, there was a lot of politics involved and there were a lot of people that didn't want me in the school. And it was just, it was a difficult time. And I think that he really took pity on me and, and went out of his way to show that he understood what I was going through in, in a sense. And, uh, you know, it was just to that. To, so I, I do um, give him a lot of credit and I have tremendous Akarasato for the way he made me feel when I came back in the classroom. Did it almost take you kind of hearing th- these experiences from, from former classmates talking about his, personality and his kindness to kind of bring back those memories did that highlight for you well it, it, what how he was more outgoing towards you i mean i think it, it 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 fills me with regret honestly that i didn't appreciate or pick up on who just who he was and i you know i it was my own just immaturity and and selfishness and just not being able to fully understand who he was or really make the effort to try to understand who he was because i really feel especially when i came back he was really reaching out to form a relationship with me. I think he really wanted me to be one of his people, quote unquote. And I just, again, as much as I, I appreciated him, uh, what he was doing and trying to be extra warm and caring towards me, I just, I didn't um, reciprocate it the way I should have. And certainly talking to everyone we've talked to and by hearing all these things and, and uh, thinking of all these things, I, you know, tremendous regret I have for not uh, allowing myself to, become closer with him and learn who he was as a person because, you know, clearly, um, as many people have said, he was not a normal rabbi. He was not a normal person. And there was nobody like him ever to grace the halls of any school in this city. So that's one thing that I, I will, uh, you know, always regret not taking advantage of. And I do feel that in, in some slight way he was, you know, he's, he's left me with, with that legacy, at least that I can remember of someone that really took the time to notice sort of what I was going through and, and, and in his own way did whatever he could to make me feel 
welcome and, uh, and appreciated back in the classroom. Okay, and we'll turn it to Yoel. Yoel, can you tell us uh, what year you had Rabbi Eugen in and some of your experiences? I actually had Rabbi Eugen in the years 1994-1995, but I would say I was a little different sort of position as Josh. The shear I was in, we were sort of in like an advanced shear they created for my grade because of <clears throat> some of my classmates and you know some of our rabbim earlier in the years and our, I guess, you know, when we began learning uh, with in Torah. And we actually had, you know, Rabbi Hollander for a couple of years, which is more advanced than a lot of the students above us. So there was sort of, the Gemara was a little more serious in my class. So the guys, you know, in certain, you know, in the academy, in certain grades, just learning isn't cool. And other times, other classes like learning is cool and being in Rabbi Eugen's share is cool. So I, I don't know how it is it with Josh, but I sort of feel that his grade, it was just like a subject and it wasn't really like, they, like a lot of guys didn't really buy into it. So in my age, there was a lot of guys that did buy into, you know, the learning at the academy. And Rabbi Ugent was different. You know, I was not a good student in terms of, you know, Gamora. You know, I had good grades and stuff, but, you know, I, I didn't take, you know, as a typical senior, I probably showed up, I don't know, maybe two, three times a week. You know, when we were there, we were learning, but there was always this respect. And it just, you know, it, it felt like he was your Zadie. You know, he, he was your Zadie and he was, you know, the stuff on the, you know, he would write on the board as mentioned, uh, you know, by some of your previous guests, way above my head. I didn't even know who the Ritva was, what the, was it a, a band? Was it a person? Was it like, you had no idea. Like you, you just really didn't know what he was writing. And, you know, we, we, you know, we learned the Gemara and, you know, we went over the Gemara and he used to give out tests and even on the tests, you know, you could sort of, you know, hand in like a blank test and he really didn't hold it against you. You know, he would always say during the tests is to teach, not to catch. So that was like his way of saying, you know, don't be nervous about tests. Whatever you know, you know. Whatever you don't, you don't. It was also mentioned that basically everyone, you know, got an A in their class. But he was someone, I mean, I had, you know, Rebbe Hollander for two years before that. And there was just, you know, Rebbe Hollander was, you know, still one of the teachers. Obviously, we had, you know, much respect for him. But Rebbe Eugent was someone who we were sort of, you know, scared of. You know, we used to go ahead and, and believe he had, you know, superpowers, you know, to sort of see the future, you know, in mornings of, you know, basketball games, we used to always ask him, are we going to win? I remember whenever we played Illinois Lutheran, he would always say, you know, oh, they're Lutherans and you're, you're going to lose. But uh, we actually beat Illinois Lutheran every, every time. But he, you know, he would, he took an interest in basketball. He liked, you know, when we won and he, he would sort of talk about it. So there was a connection. Did you ever go to a basketball game? I don't think he's ever been to a game. I think the closest he's been to is probably come downstairs during the pep rally. You know, they have once a year, they used to have a pep rally. I don't know if they still do or not, but that was about it. You know, he, I, I don't recall. I've had other teachers, you know, who did once or twice come to a game, but I, I don't recall ever Rebbe Eugen going to, you know, any any basketball game. He, he was there in the afternoons till around three o'clock when different students would, you know, drive him home. We would go to his house sometimes on, on Sundays. And, you know, once again, we, we, we would go to learn to be around him. Admittedly, I, I didn't learn anything. I don't recall a single thing I learned. Uh, you know, I have other people here who can say things that they remember from class. I, I don't. I remember, you know, just some sort of, the, you know, the jokes. And he would always have, like, candies in his pocket. You know, and he would, like, put on people's, you know, desk. And he would sort of, like, kibitz. And he was playful. But there was this respect that you had for him, like, you know, just like a gentle Zadie. And, you know, th that was that was my experience there. So, you know, you would always be on your best behavior around him. It was just that that respect, and it wasn't anything that he commanded, or, or it was just 
you know, something that, you know, you see him and his, you know, his walk down the hallway with his, you know, three piece, you know, brown suit. And he, and he's just, you know, a gentle, sweet Rebbe. And you, you just, you know, you have very warm feelings towards him. Like Josh said, he had plenty of opportunity to take advantage. I certainly did not take advantage at all. But I do treasure my experience just being around him, seeing him in the building and, you know, in his in room, I think it was like 102 or, you know, right on the side or 101, 102, you know, just sitting in his, you know, in his usual chair. Everything is, you know, constant every single day. It's something that, you know, I, I, I do treasure the fact that, you know, I had him and I had that experience because, you know, as mentioned before, it was an experience like nothing else. It wasn't like a cool young Rebbe who like tries to motivate the guys or you know, you have sometimes those rebbeim who are just older and completely on a different wavelength, and they don't try to come to you. You go to them, and that's really what you know what he what what Sheer was all about. Yoel, you became kind of like a a pretty serious guy and serious learner not long after high school, right? Uh, sure. Kind of almost maybe immediately in Israel, and then afterwards. Was there any reflection during that time on Rabbi Yuzhin, whether it was in Israel with uh, your Rebbeim there or afterwards coming back to Chicago? So when I would come back, you know, from Eretz Israel, you know, I'll go visit Rabbi Yuzhin and, you know, obviously I'll go for a shear or two. Rabina used to always, you know, mention, you know, there was no other, you know, Rebbe in the United States like Rabbi Yuzhin, you know, and, you know, even all the black hatters, they don't have, you know, anybody like, you know, Rabbi Yuzhin. And he had a certain, obviously he goes to, you know, dozens of high schools throughout the country, you know, recruiting. And, you know, he always, always, always spoke highly of Rabbi Yuzhin that there was none other like him. And he placed him on a pedestal. So there was that, you know, respect even from overseas, just, you know, somebody who sees all the teachers of all the schools and all the rebbeim. And you could have rebbeim in schools for, for 30 years, but he was just so unique. He did it his way, and it was just a draw from the students. People would just, you know, see him and respect. And, you know, they would act out in front of him if, they, you know, they would they, they could ditch. You know, they'd not show up to shear, and he'd ask, oh, you know, oh, a stomachache. Oh, you know, I'm happy you're, you're feeling better. He, he loved all of his students, as mentioned also. You know, everyone got A's. Certainly helped your uh, GPA. Tried to get into Ivy League schools. Looking back at it, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, continue my relationship with him uh, too much. Uh, you, you know, he retired, and then, you know, he was at home, and, you know, he had, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, well his uh, last number of years. There certainly was, you know, respect from Rabina. When I would come back, I would try to take, you know, opportunities to visit him once in a while. Okay, I want to end just by mentioning that we tried to span generations in terms of who we had on, but certainly throughout interviews, a number of people have been mentioned that were particularly close. And this, you know, of course, is not meant to exclude their experiences, their memories, which we really hope that, you know, either these people come on in the future or they themselves, you know, are maybe inspired to kind of publish or, or put out stuff that's there. You know, I think in particular people who um, like Benji Samuels, someone, I don't know who that is, but his name was brought up time and time again. David Aberman, Rabbi Gutstein, Daniel Altschul, who we've had on, and I think a lot of other students that we that have been mentioned or have been mentioned. We didn't mean to exclude anyone, and uh, I hope that uh, those people are inspired to you know put something out there that people could learn from and read from. I think looking back on these interviews, the goal was to get a real sense from people on the inside who Rabbi Yushin was, who, what he stood for, try to maybe understand some of the mystique that was there. And I think that 
it's really unique that we've had, you know, completely different perspectives on that. The hope and the goal is to to help, you know, kind of bring to the forefront his memory, his legacy, who he was, and introduce that to the listeners and to those that are well-informed and had relationships with him that, you know, maybe there's nothing new here, but at the very least, you know, it's something to reinforce those memories and those experiences and hopefully to inspire others. So... Or maybe if people have you know personal uh, interactions with them, they want to send an email. Send an email, j3mtrauer at gmail.com. We hope this was an inspiring and informative episode, and uh, we look forward to doing more in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jordan.